500. G'day, everyone. And for those who came in late, I'm Steve. I know you've missed me. What? I haven't been on the podcast for a while. <laughs> and you're, don't adjust your set. You are listening to Expand the Phantom Podcast. And today I'm joined by both Jermaine and Dan. How are we, fellas? Very good, mate. Very good. Bit hot over in my over in WA, but good. I'm I'm just excited to be talking to you again, Steve. I started to forget what you sounded like. Oh, the feeling's mutual. It's good to <laughs> hear hear that your docile tones again. Um, but it's not just um, the two of you joining me today. We have an extra special guest. One of the, one of the. Oh, I, I haven't got the right premier, adjective to describe Premier is a good word. Sorry, what was Premier. <laughs> premier. We'll say Premier. One of the premier artists, not just of The Phantom, but in um, on in many comics. If you if you um, checked out Jermaine's little teaser on Facebook the other day, you will have seen that um, he has a list of work behind him just to say, or just going on with his Phantom work. We've got Marvel for uh, Defenders of the Earth back in the 80s. We've got Team Phantomen from 2004 onwards. That includes stories and covers. We've got Moonstone. We've got Lightning Strikes. We've got Fru. We've got Hermes. We've got Sunday stories. We could only be talking about one man, and that is Alex Saville. How are you, Alex? I'm doing very well, thank you. And yourself? Uh, I am just pumped to be here, mate. Absolutely right. stoked. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm pretty pumped too. This sounds like it's going to be fun. <laughs> we hope so. <laughs> well, listen. I'm sure if you guys need a break to go to the fr- to the go to the refrigerator and pull out a cold beer, that's fine. So, <laughs> thank you, Alex. <laughs> now, right, now, no usually, usually, when we um I'll be back. do these podcasts, it's it's late at night on a over here in a, well over here on the eastern side of Australia, and um but today it's a it's a nice warm Saturday afternoon for for the three of us. But what time is it over for you there, Alex? Uh, it's just about 11 p.m. in the evening. In the evening, and you put in a good solid day of golf or something, was that right? Not a good solid day, actually. I just, um, you know, I didn't play 18 holes because I had to get home. Uh, we had made dinner plans with some friends, and so between, I had to do a couple of um, drawings this morning for a for Marvel Comics, um, get some approval sketches done, sent those in, um, went to play golf, checked my mobile, saw the... Uh, you know, the approvals came in, came home, went to dinner, came home from that. Uh, basically, iced my back because it's nice and <laughs> stiff from golf. And here I sit, we're talking to you guys. Awesome. Well, we thank you for making some well, time for us. Very appreciative of it. Is, you know, not, if I have work to do in the past, well, if, I don't know if you've seen on Facebook today or yesterday, but uh, King Features... Syndicate finally announced that the uh, Spider-Man newspaper strip, as we've all known it for the last 42 years, has come to an end. Oh. Uh, Yeah, Stanley's passing in November had basically put a hold on things. Uh, Stanley, you know, Stanley basically, well, he spearheaded the entire newspaper strip. Uh, He would write, I guess he wrote it for a long time, and then he was getting some ghostwriters to take over and, uh, the most current one was Roy Thomas, who was uh, also a an editor at Marvel Comics and a creator of many characters for the company, and um, also a prolific writer in his own. Um, still writing to this day, a whole bunch of stuff. And so he had been um, ghosting for Stan, and then Stan would go in, and obviously, from what I understand, according to Roy, copi- copiously edit 
everything that Roy wrote so that it would sound <laughs> like Stan. And, uh, but that's the way Stan Lee did things if he had you working for him. And uh, before Roy, there were a few others. Um, and they, some of them got so intimidated that they even quit. And they said, well, I can't seem to make Stan happy, so I'm going to quit. And I said, wow, that's a bummer. And then Roy, Roy came on, and he's been there for quite a while. And so, you know, it was fun. It was um, I had started, um, well, I'm just going to go ahead and talk a little bit about, you know, what I did there. I, yep. um, yeah, I, I was on just, this track just before Marvel. you do, Alex, would you mind just um, – yeah. so, so has the Spider-Man strip finished, or is it about to? Or Well, here's what happens. The, uh, the, last, the last Sunday will be on March 17th. And the last daily will be on March 20, I think it's 24th. Really? And uh, basically it's a, it's a, a storyline that's coming to an end. And when Stanley passed away in November, um, of course, I called up immediately and offered my condolences to his assistants and the staff uh, in California. And, they, and I asked them uh, – uh, what's going to happen with the newspaper strip? Are we going to continue kind of like the way I had hoped it happened when Lee Falk passed away 20-something yeah, years ago? Yeah. And King Features just still says The Phantom by Lee Falk, but then you've got, you know, DePaul and Weigel or, you know, DePaul and Manley with their little credit box, so they keep it going. So I was hoping for that in the sense that they would keep Stan Lee's legacy alive by continuing with the, with the, with the newspaper strip. Um, that didn't happen. They said, well, you know, finish up the storyline and then we'll have to make a decision. And then, so, you know, we thought maybe by the end of the year we would be done. And then, as it turned out, uh, Stan Lee's estate and Stan Lee used to pay us, uh, the creators. I'd get, a, I'd get a check from Stan Lee Productions and Joe Sinnott, the anchor, the same and the same for Roy Thomas. And I got a letter also. And um, then we found out that Marvel was going to take it over and they were going to pay us. So we said, oh, OK, well, that's a good sign if they're sending us contracts, work for hire agreements that they're going to take over the payments. So we figured, well, maybe this is a good sign. They'll you know, keep the thing going. But no sooner did I sign a contract. And um, within a couple of days, I found out that, well, I guess they have to do that legally in order to get us paid. But they decided that they were going to terminate the strip. For whatever reasons they had, they didn't really go into it and specify. So, you know, usually, you know, when you ask, you don't, um, when it comes to those kinds of situations, uh, the people you speak with, unless, you know, you're speaking to an, excuse me, an editor who is taking over the, let's say, the newspaper strip for the time being until it terminates completely. And he'll say, well, as far as I know, I really don't have any answers for you. So, you know, you mm. just take it for what it is. It was one of those suspected things where, you know, over the years, as Stan was getting older and I mean, he did pass away at 95 heading for 96. And so, you know, I'm just blessed knowing that, you know what, I had I had 21 or 22 years working wow. on this trip with Stan. I got a call back in 1997 from one of my editor, former editors at Marvel. And he said, listen, there's a uh, Stan Lee needs somebody to pencil the Spider-Man Sunday newspaper strip. Would you be interested? Now, I had gotten out of comics, more or less, when Marvel ended my contract back in 1996 because sales on, on newsstand comics and comic book shop comics were dwindling. And so the book that I was working on, which was a Spider-Man book, but it was more based on the animated series from the 1990s, uh, that book got canceled. I couldn't seem to get work from any of the other editors up there at Marvel. But then 
Jim Salakrup, who used to be my editor on the Web of Spider-Man comics that I drew for about seven and a half years, he had already left Marvel and gone on to this company called Topps Comics, uh, yep. which produced licensed material. They did um, something on Jurassic Park. Uh, they did uh, a four-issue miniseries based on the Dracula movie that was that starred Gary Oldman back in the 90s. Uh, the Francis, I think it was the Francis Ford Coppola movie. Uh, they did a few other, Xena, the Warrior Princess, uh, uh, Hercules. They did all those t- television syndications. And so they were doing the X-Files. And it, as it turned out, um, they needed somebody new to draw the X-Files. So I said, sure, I'll do that. I went there and I drew 12 issues of the X-Files over the course, uh, over the course of about a year, maybe 12, uh, 13 or 14 months. But then what happened was back in 1998, when the X-Files, when the first X-Files movie came out, um, all of a sudden, the, the, the 1013, Chris Carter's company, Chris Carter was the founder of the X-Files, his yeah. company out in California decided that they were going to be too busy to look over scripts and artwork from Topps Comics, so they weren't going to renew the license. So now I did not have any more regular comics, but I was already doing the Spider-Man Sunday strip. Um, and, uh, so I had, but I only had that one page of pencils to do every week. So I started to go back into some, to doing some advertising work. Um, you know, not too far from here, from where I live in the big city of Orlando. And so I was doing a lot of those agency work, that, that agency work. But then, um, a friend of mine, um, well, let's see, Dick Giordano was a colleague and a friend, and I found out that he was working for um, Egmont. Now, yep. yes, as even though he, I would consider him a friend and a colleague, it was as, as a freelancer, you know, I had my own particular personal credo where I'm not going to ask somebody else who's looking for work, as Dick Giordano was, and the same went for Bob McLeod and even Paul Ryan. I wasn't going to get in touch with those guys and say, hey, can you give me contact information for the Phantom? Because I'd like to work there, too. Uh, just didn't seem like that was something about my own particular code of ethics, that it was that I wasn't going to do that because, hey, everybody is looking to, you know, make a living by getting whatever clients they can. As it turned out, I, I guess I um, saw some, some kind of a Phantom thing on the... Um, I must have gone online, obviously, and saw that there was a, this group called the Friends of the Phantom, and uh, yep. it was was headed by Ed Rhodes at the time, and sort of, uh, I guess, uh, also co-headed by Pete Klaus. And um, both of those gentlemen became my friends, and um, Ed was the one who gave me uh, Ulf Granberg's um, contact information so that I could get a hold of him possibly send him some samples and see if he had any work for me. Well, this was at the end of 2003. I got the contact information, so now I could contact Ulf Granberg by myself, which I did. I sent him some samples, and he got back to me within a day and said, wow, this is great stuff. I'd love to have you work for us. Uh, How soon can you start? I said, well, as soon as you can send me a script, I'd be ready. And they had something (laughs) for me in early 2004, I think it yeah. was the first the first story I ever did was called The Courier. Yes. Um, yep. Yes. Okay. And so I did, uh, you know, now I was hoping and speaking with 
then with Dick Giordano and Paul Ryan, you know, those guys were doing maybe, I would say, at least three stories a year. Now, I knew that Egmont had this big stable of artists. You know, some of these guys are uh, that at the time, you know, as you know, the guys that they had had been working for Egmont probably for about 30 years already. And so yes. they were very loyal to that group of guys. So having new people come in, initially I started with a book a year. Uh, I think in 2005 I did a story. Um, in <coughs> excuse me, in 2005, I well after I had turned in this one story, which was the uh, Phantom Museum, um, which Ulf really liked. I think a couple of months later, I happened to be in in um, San Diego and uh, at the Comic Con, and he, you know, he got in touch with me and he wanted to give me another story to do, but. I, I had to refuse it because I was, had just gotten this assignment to storyboard a movie. And so oh. I couldn't I couldn't storyboard a movie, draw a phantom comic, keep up with the Sundays and do all that stuff. It just physically was impossible. So I had to turn that story down. And um, but then in 2006, they gave me another story. And um, but then after that, I didn't get anything. I had nothing. For about five years until there was a change in the editorial regime where Ulf Granberg left. And um, I think it was Klaus Romerthy and. Um, um, oh, the. Mikhail Sol? Um, no, I'm sorry. The. Um, oh, gosh. Hans Lindahl. Oh, uh, yes. Hans Lindahl was co editing uh, the Phantom books at Egmont starting in 2012. And uh, when I heard that from Ed Rhodes at the time, he said, yeah, yeah, guess what? Ulf isn't there anymore. Because I would send Ulf messages and say, hey, listen, if you got a story for me, I'd love to do another one. You know, can you give me a fill-in? Just let me know if somebody all of a sudden has to renege and they can't do a story, I'd love to work. But I never got any answers back. But then when I found out that Haas Lindahl and, and Romerthy were going to be editing, co-editing, I sent them a letter. Uh, you know, I got the contact information from Ed Rhodes. And um, then um, Haas got back to me right away and said, yeah, we were you were on our list of people that we were going to contact to see if you you know, still would like to work for us. So, yeah. So that's where the relationship started again um, after about a five year hiatus for me to start working on some stories for them. And, uh, yeah, I'd say. Pretty much, I've done maybe one book a year since then. I haven't really done all that many. Um, but right now, last year, a book did come out that I did the year before, and that was the one with the, um, you know, the, the that controversial one with the gay, <laughs> with the gay pride parade, yep. which freaked everybody out for some reason. For me, I was I said, well, it's a phantom story, and uh, you know, you got good guys, you got bad guys. What's the big mm. deal? But, you know, now in this particular political age of correctness and uh, with everything going down, uh, you know, you're always going to have those particular conservative uh, factions that are going to say, hey, this kind of stuff doesn't belong in comics. My kids don't need to see this. Meanwhile, the people in the I guess it's the LBGT communities, whatever, they're they're happy that they're finally getting some recognition. And, you know, the big the big to do, obviously, as you might know, was the fact that. Phantom was defending, uh, you know, this this parade, this group mm. of gay people. Um, and the fact is, it has nothing to do with them being gay, them yes. being uh, of different colors, different creeds. It's just the fact that they were oppressed. And, yes. 
you know, if the if the Russian faction, you know, the bad guys in this particular situation would have been the oppressors uh, or the oppressed by the gay by the gay faction. Well, then the Phantom would have sided with the oppressed and he would have basically been against, you know, the the the, the parade people, whether they be gay or whether they not be gay. It's exactly. Just, it's always there to defend, you know, those that are defenseless. Mm. And yes. so that was the big deal. But of course, you know, unfortunately, you know, with the I guess the narrow mindedness of, you know, some groups out there, they they didn't see it that way. So it became a big deal. It, became, fact, it was such I, a striking cover, too, that um, that really caught everyone's attention. And I don't know that lots of people actually read the book and, and understood yeah. the nuance that you're talking about there, Alex. Oh, yeah. The fact is, is that, well, let's see, I think it's Henrik Salstrom did the cover. Yep. Yeah. And obviously, you know, he's he's hitting this guy with the flag. And if you got that colorful gay pride flag there, which, you know, makes it striking. Um, no pun intended, yeah. because he, he hit the guy with the flagpole. OK. And the guy even in the when I read the story in English to draw it and this um, this leader of the group there, he goes, you would hit me with that flagpole. In other words, this was touched by, you know. Those yeah. others, more or less, and you would you would touch me with that thing, and he goes, hey, basically he just said, hey, you know, get up and get ready to go to jail or whatever it was. Now I spoke with Glenn, um, um, oh, Glenn Ford, and I asked yep. him, hey, you did you guys publish that comic Not yet? yet. I don't Not yet. That. Yeah, so I don't know what he's waiting for. Maybe I've I've <laughs> actually heard. I got an email from someone which is not in the free stable. Um, but I've heard that it might be published in the next month or two. Oh, okay. Well, put, put it this way. If it were to be published in the next month or two, uh, generally speaking, for the few issues of um, of mine that have come from Egmont that have gone to Fru, Glenn usually, uh, I sort of have a, a sort of a running relationship with Glenn where I would get to draw the covers for my own stories. Okay. I had spoken with him maybe about a month ago and asked him if they had any, you know, plans to publish that story. He said it sort of wasn't in their schedule at the moment, Ooh. but I think if if it does come out, then they would get in touch with me to do a cover. Might want to get in touch with him. <laughs> if they go ahead and publish it without me doing a cover, well, they have every right. You know, we didn't do a written agreement or anything, and of course. You know, with him being in Australia and I'm being here, we can't even shake hands on it. So, I mean, it's, <laughs> you know, so all it is is a verbal. Yeah, well, you know, if we do your stories, you know, we'd like to, we, you know, you can do covers for us. So that's that's kind of neat. Um, well, if they get someone else to do the cover, it won't be as good. Excuse me? <laughs> if someone else did the cover and not you, it wouldn't be as good. Well, I'll tell you something. I am there is, There's a couple of guys that are, I mean, and I'm speaking, you know, we all have our opinions about the artists that we like, okay? And even myself as a professional. There are some guys that I've seen do some cover work for Fru, which is actually, you know, mind-blowing. And kind oh, of yeah, not... Are, I, I do say with tongue off, feeling right? cheek, they are awesome, but yeah. Oh, is, there, awesome. is there anyone, Alex, I, I... you'd particularly like to give a shout-out to? Well, thank you. Oh, anybody <laughs> in particular? Well, I mean, I know Jeff Weigel just did a story. I really, really am impressed with his artwork. Um, yep. There was, um, uh, let's see, there was this one fella, I hate to say it, whose name escapes me, but he did some sort of a, a really nice montage cover with a, the head of the Phantom and, 
there were, I think there was a shot of Diana in there. And he did this whole beautiful composition. And wow, it had really, um, you know, there was inspirations there of some Cy Barry work and, you know, some other artists. And I got in touch with him and I friended him on Facebook. But I think now that I'm turning 67, I'll... I'll use the excuse that, you know, my brain is starting to fail me, but uh, I'm sure. Was it a Jeremy McPherson? Who is it? Jeremy McPherson. Jeremy McPherson. That does sound familiar, Um, but I'll have to I'll have to look it up myself on Facebook uh, and see. Uh, As a matter of fact, I had. I could look at a comment. I'm not going to try and get off the Skype thing right now, but I was going to say I can look. I can look on a conversation that I had on Facebook Messenger with Glenn Ford and just go back on it where I had mentioned this this gentleman to him and said, wow, this guy is amazing. And he said, yeah, he's a, you know, he's like a, a gift. He's a giant, you know, in the industry already. He's a young fellow. And I had gotten in touch with him and complimented him highly on his work. And I said, normally I don't go out of my way. You know, unless I really like something, I'm not going to go ahead and compliment somebody just to be polite, unless, of course, I'm put on the spot. But if I'm just looking at something. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, 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 I'm not you, know, not. you're not putting me on the spot. You know, if you mentioned, uh, you know, somebody's name and um, uh, and I would didn't particularly care for his style, I would probably just say, well, um, yeah, he's a good storyteller. <laughs> 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 and, just, and just leave it at that. I would say uh, most of the guys that I've seen that have done work for for Fru. Uh, which, to be honest with you, I have to just backtrack a little on Fru. When I first found out, A, that there was Phantom was being published in, in Sweden for so many years, and then simultaneously being published in Australia every two weeks for so many years, it actually blew my mind to think, wow, they're doing all this new material outside of the United States, and I never even heard of it. Yeah. So it was kind of neat to see because, I mean, I'm a Phantom fan from way back when. I'd have to say before I even got involved with, um, you know, liking Superman and Batman and those particular heroes, which I didn't I was not I was unaware of a Superman comic until I was six years old. But I would see Superman in black and white television in our home as a kid. And I was six years old and I'm seeing this guy, you know, in grays flying on television and bullets are bouncing off him. And I thought this guy was the real deal. Uh, But in the meantime, my dad used to bring home uh, the newspapers on Sundays. And we had this one paper called the Journal American. And uh, there was a big, it was a giant tabloid sized paper. When you open the, it was folded in half, you'd open it up. And there was this tremendously large page of, uh, you know, a Prince Valiant by Hal Foster. Um, and then I think on the first, on the inside second page was a, I'm going to say, I think it was Terry and the Pirates or something like that and something else. Yeah. And then on the third page, you had Flash Gordon, Mandrake the Magician, and the Phantom. All three on one page. I mean, how much better than that could it get, right? Yes. So as a kid, I used to, you know, I used to cut out, I used to cut out all those strips and I would put them in a shoebox and every week, um, you know, it's, it, it became obvious very quickly that Lee Falk was doing two storylines. And, you know, there was a storyline for the Sundays and the storyline for the dailies. Now, I only, I only got to read the dailies once in a while because my dad didn't bring home that particular paper during the week. Uh, mm. But then when I would see it, I'd go, this isn't this somehow doesn't make sense. 
compared to what's going on on <laughs> yeah. Sundays. I, mean, I was probably five years old, and I'm I'm already looking at this going, this doesn't fit what's happening in the Sundays. On the Sundays, the Phantom is in this jungle, and there's giant insects coming after them. What the heck is going on? <laughs> so, I mean, I remember, of course, I got introduced with, um, with um, to the Phantom with Cy Barry in the, um, well, obviously in, well, no, Wilson McCoy first, because I was looking at comic books in comics, Sunday comics in the late 50s. Um, so, yeah, it was yeah. Wilson McCoy. And then yeah. after, after that, I guess I probably might have seen, <coughs> excuse me, some of Bill Lignanti's Sundays, because I, you know, I understand he did work on that strip for probably, what, about eight or nine months? Yeah, just over a year, I think. Oh, just over a year. Okay. And, um, I think I just remember also reading an interview or some kind of a an article about him recently where he said that, you know, he thought that he was going to get the, the strip, but then, you know, it turns out that he was nothing but a glorified fill-in artist, and then they gave it to Scott Barry. Yes. Um, now, and then, of course, there were a lot of people that were trying out, from what I understand, for the strip. Matter of fact, um, the anchor, the legendary Joe Sinnott, who has worked had worked for Marvel and still in some capacity did up until now with me, who's 90, I think he's going to be 92 this year. Um, and he was working with at Marvel since he was probably in his early twenties. Um, wow. we worked on, you know, all those Jack Kirby comics, the fantastic four and Thor and all that stuff. And just has a beautiful line. He told me that he actually tried out for the phantom strip. Also, when I guess the word was out that King features was looking for a replacement for Wilson McCoy after his uh, untimely passing. Yep. So he had done a strip. Uh, <laughs> he had done a page of Sundays and sent it out as a sample. And it sort of, it had a bit of a, a Wilson McCoy feel to it because I guess everybody figured, well, if, if they loved Wilson McCoy and, um, you know, he passed, so we might as well give them something that kind of reminds them of Wilson. And, uh, you know, but I don't remember seeing what, Cy Barry's test panels were or test Sundays were. Um, all I do know is that his earlier work had a little bit of, you could still see a little bit of Wilson McCoy in there until, you know, he kind of got his groove and then it was more of what he was doing. Mm. Um, mm. And, you know, I mean, I love some of those early strips that Cy had drawn, like um, the Island of Dogs, uh, yeah. the Reef. Those are probably two of my favorite stories that he's done uh, for the dailies. Um, and then, you know, picking up some of these through uh, special editions, there might be another story or two in there with, um, you know, some of those really early ones from the early 60s. And you could just tell stylistically, yeah, this is Cy in the beginning. And, uh, well, Cy in the beginning was just as good as it was, you know, Cy later on and in the end. Um, yeah. So anyway, um, let's see. And uh, as far as my affiliation with the Phantom, I know you had said um, you had mentioned that, yes, I had gotten to Marvel and I worked on the Defenders of the Earth for four issues. Actually, I did five issues. The fifth one was unpublished. Unfortunately, it was never really even dialogued because at Marvel Comics, we had this particular way of working. They called it the Stanley method, where <laughs> the writer would give you a plot. Maybe a type. It could be page by page description in a paragraph of what's going on on each page. And as the artist, then I have the let's say the freedom 
to take what the art, what the writer has take has given me, and decide if I'm going to do it in four panels, five panels, or six panels, or maybe even you know one big panel and a couple of small inserts. As long yeah. as I told the story, that's that's all that was important. So I didn't, I wasn't basically married to a particular layout where the writer would say, you know, panels one through seven, eight, or nine, and give you copious amounts of dialogue, and then you think. How the heck am I even going to draw this? Because he's left me no room. And mm. um, so, at any rate, which uh, which style do you which, prefer? That's what I was going to ask. Yeah. So <laughs> we think we all had it in our back of our heads. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry. What's the question? So, so which of those two methods do you prefer um, in terms of the script that you receive? Oh, definitely. Well, when I first started working at DC, I was all full script. And then towards the end of my tenure there, and I say tenure, I worked for them for the first nine years. It seemed in the last year that I was working there, some of the writers were, I had guess, had gotten the green light to go ahead and try working in this Marvel method. And I got to do a couple of stories that way. And it just seemed the transition was, I mean, it was challenging because what I was doing was for every line that the writer had written, I would draw a panel. Sometimes I would have 12 page panels. I mean, 12 panel pages. And I think, Gee, somehow this isn't this isn't probably the way it should be do, done. So then I would ask mm -hmm. the editor, "Hey, is it okay if I combine panels and do they go? Oh yeah, yeah. However you want to do it." So I was starting to get my feet wet doing it that way, and I realized how much more fun it was to work that way again because of the freedom to be able to interpret what the writer had given you, and every writer worked that way in a different fashion. Um, Jerry Conway, who was writing the um, Web of Spider-Man when I was working on that. He would give you a paragraph for every page and pretty much yeah. just kind of outline what was going on on every page. And so it was easy enough for me to decide how many panels I'd want to use. Um, when I worked with um, I only worked with Jim Shooter, the editor in chief at Marvel one time where he gave me what seemed to be a short story. Uh, there was no, you know, there was some dialogue bits in the in this particular short story. And he gave me the plot. It was a fill in on a book called Starbrand, which had been, uh, I guess, spearheaded or helmed initially by Jim Shooter and John Romita Jr. And this was the third issue, and for some reason or other, John Jr. couldn't draw it. So they asked me if I'd, you know, want to take a shot at working with Jim Shooter, and I said, sure, why not? He paid, you know, he's, as far as I know, he's another guy. Um, and the reason I said that is because when I was at D.C., and I was working with Julius Schwartz while I was on Green Lantern and Green Arrow and Superman. People would say to me, oh, man, Julius Schwartz is a really tough guy to get along with. He's, you know, he's kind of harsh and gruff. And well, people are harsh and gruff when you don't give them what it is that <laughs> they ask of you. OK, so as as the man who is handing me a check, if he wants you to do something a certain way, you say, OK, boss, no problem. Yeah. Okay? Yes. Um, but unfortunately, in this comic book business, this wonderful business that we have, there are a lot of personalities who are very, very, <laughs> I guess, individual and self-centered. And they have this particular, let's say, ego about themselves that if, mm. they do it, if they do it their way, that's the only way. And if an editor was to give them any flack about it, they would say, well, I don't agree with that. I think we should do it this way or that way. And then the editor would get on your case and you'd say, yeah, this guy's a pain in the butt. Because he's uh, constantly busting my my horns about how I'm presenting this material, but I never did. I never did that. I felt like, well, I you know, like I said, you pay my check. You want me to do something? You want you know? He'd say sometimes, well, there's this. You see this little head here? 
uh, the way you drew the, the mouth, it almost looks like he's smiling. And I would say, but Julie, that head is only a quarter of an inch high. Okay. <laughs> All right. Now, this is a quarter of an inch that I drew it, which means when you reduce it by 60%, yeah. think of how small that is. <laughs> and I said, he goes, I said, I don't know if the, he goes, no, the fans will see it. If they see it, they'll write a letter about it. I to said, be fair, okay. he's probably right there. He's probably right. It's, it's well, it is amazing for, you know, when you, when you draw something and, you know, uh, sometimes you say, okay, well, that, that face is no big deal. Once it gets reduced, you won't notice it. But when it does get reduced, if it's not drawn at least ah, to a point of recognizability, you look at it and you go, damn, I could have gone to the computer. Well, back in those days, we didn't have computers. We didn't have Photoshop. But, I mean, yeah. you could still go in there and fix that, turn the corner down of the guy's mouth and pencil it that way because, you know, you can't rely on an inker to fix anything for you. You would just have to assume that they're going to ink whatever you draw. So yeah. at any rate, so you make that little change. I mean, what's the big deal? Maybe you know, I voiced my um, I voiced my opinion. He said, "No, I think we should still change it." I would change it. It take all of about maybe thirty seconds. Pull my eraser out, fix it. How does that? Okay, that looks good. Bang! It's over. No, yeah. no other confrontations. <laughs> nothing. Uh, one time, the first time he gave me an editorial comment was I was doing this Green Lantern story and um, Green Lantern had this construct from his ring where I guess, you know, you take your thumb and your forefinger and you could flick something off. OK, so or flip it uh, or I think it was flick it. So in the script, it even said and he flicked it off. So I figured I'm making up this cool sound effect. So. When he does the motion, I wrote flick, F-L-I-K, okay, or F-L-I, -F, no, F-L-I-C-K. And so I showed it to him, and Julie Schwartz goes, we can't use that. I said, why not? He says, because if the ink gets too dense and saturated, uh, yeah, the L. I could see where that was L, going. And then, you know, when he's making this motion, we can't have the kids reading, you know, F-E-C-K while Green Lantern is flicking the guy off. So, okay. so he says, just, just if you want, just, you know, either take out this letter or ch change the K to a, uh, a P. So it says flip. I said, OK, fine, we'll do flip. I, I, I see your point. Um, because in those days when we were dealing with newsprint and yes, you would get just like. Just like newspapers, you get oversaturation. You know, when you see, yeah. I'm sure that when you, I'm sure that when you see some of your favorite newspaper strips or even comics online, and you see how beautiful the colors look, and then if let's say, for example, now in the Phantom, a case in point, because it's primarily a newspaper strip. Okay, um, when Paul Ryan was doing it, Tom Smith was coloring it, and even then, when Jeff Weigel started, when Terry Beatty started. I would get in touch with these guys and say, you know, when you do the Phantom in purple and then you put a dark blue night sky on the computer, yeah. it reads really well. But in the newspaper, the two colors end up being the same color. Yeah. And, See, that's you know, why purple, purple is really? such a great camouflage. Oh, it's a super <laughs> camouflage. Much better, much better than, what is it, in France or Argentina where the Phantom is wearing a red costume? Red, yeah. 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 <laughs> A red costume with yellow striped trunks. Oh, man, what a camouflage that is. <laughs> um, so at any rate, 
But the Defenders of the Earth at Marvel in 1986 or 87 was not my first my first possible uh, trip with the Phantom. Uh, when I was working on Green Lantern and Green Arrow and also the Flash in my young career at the time, I got to meet on a on a train as we were heading into DC Comics pretty much together. Um, I met Milt Snappen. Uh, one of the letterers on Green Lantern, but then I found out he also lettered the Phantom Strip for Cy Barry. Oh. And one oh. time he asked me, um, hey, you busy? And I said, well, yeah, gosh, I'm drawing Green Lantern, I'm drawing the Flash. I, I, I'm drawing my eyeballs out over here. He goes, wow, too bad, because I know Cy Barry is looking for a new assistant, and oh. I thought that your style would be perfect, you know, to work with him. <laughs> and I said, what? <laughs> Work <laughs> with Cy Barry. I mean, I'm okay. I didn't have any children yet, so I didn't have that responsibility. But I mean, DC had entrusted me with two comics. I mean, The Flash mm. and Green Lantern, two of their major superstars. And I said to my, I said, wow, I don't know if I could, you know, I don't know if I could turn down, you know, one of those books just to work with Cy Barry as an assistant. I don't know. I'm getting full credit on the Green Lantern book and on the Flash book, but as an assistant. I probably wouldn't get any credit at all. No. And it didn't dawn on me at the time that I probably could have learned so much because yeah. actually in a way, even though I went to the school of visual arts in New York city and I studied for about a year and a half, I had a well, year and a half. I had two, one class in the first year and another class for a half a year after that with Will Eisner, the creator of the spirit. Other than that, other than having him, you know, teach us some storytelling tips and about lighting and certain things, um, my stylistically, I'm basically self-taught. So, oh, wow. you know, and the storytelling and all that kind of stuff, you know, it's it's just from kind of paying attention to what's out there and then getting those particular tips and tricks from Will Eisner that turned me into the, I guess, the artist that I am today or the storyteller I am today. And then, of course, you know, you pick up little little things here and there from various artists. When I worked on The Flash, Ross Andrew, the famous, you know, Wonder Woman and Star Spangled War Stories and Spider-Man artist and Metal Men artist. He was the editor at the time at DC Comics on The Flash. And even though we only worked together for seven issues, uh, I learned a lot from him about certain things that I still do in my work today. Oh, um, wow. And so the thing is, is that when I turned down that assistantship with Cy Barry, I found out not too long after that they went to rich buckler and rich buckler ended up working with him for a year and a half. Okay. So is that, would that be one of that, your, sorry, would that be like one of your regrets? Like oh, looking back over definitely. your career? I would say, I would say I've probably had two regrets. The first regret was that I got into the comic book business a little bit too early. And the only <laughs> reason I say that was because, after I was in it already for about, I think, a year or two, uh, Joe Cuba started his cartooning school um, yeah. in the next state. I was in New York and he was in New Jersey. And, yes, I would have had to travel there and be on live on campus and do a whole college thing. But I would have been taught by professionals for every single class. I yeah. mean, guys that have come out of there are just top-notch artists. I mean, you know, sure, the Cubert boys, they're all great artists. Uh, Graham Nolan, Bart Sears. I mean, the, the list can go on and on about Pete Lee Weeks, oh, a fantastic artist. Guys that have come out of that school 
and all the things that they learned from Joe Kubert and from so many of the other artists that were teaching at that time. Uh, that's a major regret was that I wish I wish I would have gone. I wish that school was around and I would have had the choice between that school and the School of Visual Arts. And even though I don't regret the things that I learned from Will Eisner, I would have to say that I probably could have learned maybe the same types of things if and more by going to Joe Kubert school. Mm. Uh, so that's that's kind of a regret because I kind of, you know, there, even when I was in the School of Visual Arts, there were some guys that were already working as assistants. There was this one fellow named Ken Landgraf, I think, um, and he was an assistant to Rich Buckler. He was an assistant to Gil Kane. He was an assistant to Wally Wood. And when I would ask him, well, what do you do as, your, as the assistant? Well, sometimes I'll, you know, number one, in those days, because we didn't have the Internet, all those artists were, you know, we were all required to have these huge libraries called morgues, you know, yeah. files, filing cabinets where you can pick up reference material. And some of these guys went a little bit nuts, though, where, <laughs> you know, let's say, for example, you know, you'd see a, let's say Hal Foster and Prince Valiant would draw a battle scene or have pages and pages of battle scenes. Well, those clips would be in these artists' files so that when, when they would have to do a battle scene, they would go ahead and reference that battle scene. And even if they didn't use all of it, they would use bits and pieces of it, at least as starting points, if not, you know, maybe mm. even <clears throat> taking, basically um, swiping, if you will, parts yeah. of these battles to make life a lot easier because, wow, you know, drawing battle scenes are difficult enough as it is. You know, when I think about some of the stories that I've drawn, even for the Phantom, where I go, okay, it's the Phantom, it's a couple of bad guys here and there, we're in the city or we're in the jungle, easy enough. But, you know, throw the Phantom on a pirate ship and, you know, you've mm. got, you know, the, the pirate ships battling, you know, all of a sudden you're looking at an Errol Flynn movie in comics. There's so many moving <laughs> you know? parts, isn't there? Oh, my gosh, you know, and all, and it's all the costumes and all the props that you have to be aware of, basically, let's say, the cutlery, what they ate with, you know, the types of <laughs> lamp they would have, the types of clothes they would have, the types of bed sheets. I mean, if you're going to do it, you want to do it right. So you got to look all this stuff up. It's not being having this generalized impression of those particular background details that you could just basically use from story to story. And if there's something that, let's say, nowadays, if they say, well, you know, she drove, he's driving a car or she's driving a car. Well, then I look up a modern car. And of course, yeah. with cars, you know, I'm not going to be one of those diehards and say, you know what, I'm not going to trace this car because tracing is cheating. That's a bunch of baloney. Okay. Even Wally Wood ages ago said, I, th I think he said, it was this adage he came up with. And he said, never draw what you can copy. Never copy what you can trace. Never trace w what you can paste down. <laughs> um well and you know when you, when you think about it when you think about it sometimes you look at look at some of the comics that are out there today and there's a there's a bit of there's some incredible detail going on in some of the backgrounds and that's because there are certain software programs out there one namely called SketchUp where you can go ahead and either lift backgrounds that they have in there, like, uh, you know, ad infinitum on buildings and skyscrapers and houses and, and uh, you know, all kinds of business-type warehouses. All that stuff is at your fingertips. And if you even want to just take bits and pieces of what they have in their library, 
you can create your own. And then mm. you have this ability with the software to basically rotate your camera inside the software. So if you create a room and you put all the particulars in the room, like desks and chairs and lamps and little props, now you can cert- now you can rotate that room and get come up with all these different fancy camera angles mm. that you wouldn't think of when you were drawing because, well, maybe that particular prop wasn't in the shot, but now you want to put it in there. And it's an incredible tool. I have to, actually, I've never used it, but I've seen the results and I say, wow, that's so much easier to do that than to, you know, sometimes you got people where they go, okay, in the next two pages, we're going to be walking through a mall. Well, a mall is store upon store. Yeah. It could be multi-levels. Yeah. There's, there's all kinds of things going on. There's, you know, these uh, landscape things in, you know, in the middle of the mall and you got trees and all kinds of greenery growing up to the, you know, through the roof, through the skylights and whatever. And you look at drawing that and you go, wow, you could you could spend a day or more drawing this one particular establishing shot and then having to use bits and pieces of that shot throughout the next couple of pages. It's going to give you so much more time to actually do the storytelling, which is, I guess, what you're there for, what you want to do. Oh, yes. As a matter of fact, there is an artist named Alex Maleev who was drawing Daredevil for Marvel Comics, I'd say maybe with maybe even five or six years ago. And what he did was um, the first issue that he did, he drew. Okay, hands on, just drew the whole thing, you know, referencing backgrounds. Actually, what he was doing was he was building files. So then this. So let's say it took him four or five weeks to draw that first issue. The second issue took him about maybe three weeks to draw because now he had all these backgrounds on file. Yeah. So now when you think about it, you go, okay, Daredevil lives in these rundown tenements of New York City. So if you draw, if you have these tenements on file hmm. and you've used them once before, do you think that if you don't use that same room or that same street or that same rooftop, among others, in some other panels in the follow, in the ensuing two, three or four issues that follow, people are going to go, oh, man. He's using the same backgrounds. Well, you see it on television and in movies all the time. They keep going back to these shots. And so he found a way to, let's say, save so much time by having all these files where it came down to it. By the time he got to, I think, the fourth or fifth issue, he was doing a story in in one week. Wow. Because he had so many things on. And that adds to um, continuity as much as anything else. Yeah, the thing that see the thing for me is I guess because I'm sort of a purist that I'm not <laughs> saying that I wouldn't want to employ some of those tools, but if I was now let's say playing a jigsaw puzzle and just taking files and popping them in panels and then turning that in and saying, "Okay, <clears throat> that issue's done." Well, I'm not drawing anymore. I'm not creating anymore. And I think that kind of takes the fun out of what it is that we do. If you're going to turn it into such a commercial art factor, art thing, that you would just be able to, you know, put a comic book together by just taking all kinds of files of people, backgrounds, all this stuff, and just reassembling it in some way where if you need a new panel, sure, you can draw that. But it's not going to take you very long. And you get some people that say, yeah, well, I can... I can draw two, three books a month that way, and I could get rich. Well, if that's your prime directive, that's fine. And I, I have no, you know, I say nothing. There's nothing wrong with that if that's what you want to do. But I mean, yeah. if you don't 
But if you want to be able to draw and get that satisfaction of telling a good story, um, as I do, uh, there are certain things I'd love to be able to just pop into a background of a panel. Don't get me wrong. But for the most mm. part, I draw everything. And uh, yeah. if you can find a great shot, well, then I'll, uh, you know, a couple of, you know, if you're using a car and you can find five different angles on that car, you can use those five different angles in your story. Um, I just did a story for Lightning Strike Comics um, on the Phantom. We did the first one last year. Uh, they planned four issues. Uh, the second and third issues didn't necessarily, uh, weren't necessarily affiliated with the first issue we did. So the fourth issue is actually part two, and there's a pirate ship in there. And um, <laughs> I had found, believe it or not, uh, the, well, not a, well, the pirate ship for the Sing was supposed to be a, a Chinese junk. And as it turned out, you know, I did my research on that, and I found this one boat that actually was a modeling kit. And I'm thinking, should I buy that kit? Put the boat together? <laughs> it was 150 a, bucks, mind you. It's and a tax to- rod off, isn't it? It's a tax write-off, but then I got to put the whole boat together. I mean, <laughs> who's, who's got that kind of time, right? But boy, it would have been invaluable because I, you know, sure with my camera uh, on the phone, I could have taken all kinds of shots. And when you have a good shot for reference, all of a sudden you get excited because you go, "Oh, this is a shot that nobody's seen before. Now I can use that and pop that in." And, People will think I'm like unbelievable. I probably went to, uh, you know, I went to Madagascar or someplace and I found a pipe, <laughs> all kinds of shots of it. But, you know, if you have the model prop and it looks, it's highly detailed and looks as great as it is, well, yeah, it would have been so cool to have that. But again, time constraints. I mean, you find your ways around certain things and you do it. Um, and so I ended up doing it. It was successful. This particular fourth issue is kind of a, I'm excited about seeing it. Uh, it's kind of a reunion. I'll call it a reunion issue because uh, Doug Clauber, who um, used to draw a lot of Phantom covers for Moonstone yeah. Comics, uh, he's doing the cover, and I'm doing the pencils. And then Keith Williams, who used to uh, work on my pencils when I was drawing Web of Spider-Man, he, we worked together for about four or four and a half years. Um, and as you know, he was also inking George Olsen. Um, so he has mm. Phantom, you know, he's got a Phantom legacy in his background. So now you've got three former or, or three Phantom artists working together basically under one roof. So mm. uh, yeah. I think it's cool. We so, just interviewed Doug Calabo, what, probably about a month ago? And then we interviewed Keith Williams, was it last two, year? Two, three Maybe weeks. two months. Yeah. Two, yeah. So we've just um, talked to him and they've all... Uh, I've all mentioned your name as well, Alex, and, and stuff as well. So it's, so it's interesting. How's it been? Um, I mean, we, we're lucky enough that we've seen um, issue one of Lightning Strike and, and they've had some trouble getting that out to other fans. But um, how, how have you found the process working with a, a company based in Ireland? And uh, it's, it's a corner of the world that we probably haven't associated with the Phantom much before. But um, you, you, your association with Lightning Strike and, um, and the process there, you, have you been enjoying that? Oh gosh, very much so. Um, it just turned. I, I guess I just again caught. Um, I became aware of Lightning Strike Comics probably maybe I'd say oh about a year and a half ago, and I saw that they were producing new material, and I'm thinking, wow, another country that's doing new material, and how does that work? I mean, Egmont <laughs> in Sweden, 
uh, in Europe. They have the Phantom, and now you got the Phantom in uh, Ireland. And if, if I'm not mistaken, they also produce. Do they produce new material for the Phantom in India, or is it just reprint? Uh, just reprints. Oh, okay. But at any well, rate, even yeah. even to have the reprints, you have to get some sort of a license from King Features yes. to produce those to, to do those reprints. Yes. Okay. So I mean, King Features has you know they they have no qualms about selling the license for the Phantom to anybody who asks for it. I guess. If, as long you as know, you've got enough problem. money. <laughs> yeah, as long as the money's there, they go sure, why not? But I think there's something to do. Well, at one point, if you recall, and I'm sure you probably are aware of this, when Hermes Press started doing the Phantom and they wanted to produce their original material, I think Dynamite Comics here in America wanted to do the Phantom also with that, uh, you know, with the, you know, the blood thing on his guy on his head and it's dripping down. Yeah, and yeah the last Phantom. Yeah, they went through that. I've never really read those books. I was intrigued by the covers because I'm an Alex Ross fan, but um, I wasn't intrigued enough to, I guess, buy them and you know read mm. the story. I would imagine an interesting, yeah, it's an interesting concept, but okay. uh, they didn't really. I had I had some great ideas, Dynamite, but they never really followed through with them. Okay, um, what so, did you think of yeah. that series that did called The King's Watch? Um, I, I enjoyed the start. Which was the one that was done by Mark Laming and oh yes. Jeff Parker. Jeff Parker. Yeah. Yeah. The start of it was really good, and then it kind of went downhill when they got other other people onto it, and um, which was a bit of a pity because. Well, it was um, the new Defenders of the Earth, really. Wasn't yeah. It? Yeah. Yeah. It was a real pity because I was hoping we were going to actually, you know, see Defenders of the Earth following on from what you guys did and and stuff and. It was yeah. It started off well, and then they kind of let they kind of dropped the ball. Well, it's funny because I remember at the time that comic came out, and uh, Hass Lindahl in Egmont was still an editor up there, and uh, I asked him, "Hey, what do you think of the, uh, you know, the look of the Phantom for King's Watch?" And he goes, "I'm not really that keen on it because uh, the Phantom shouldn't have that grubby beard on his face, and you know he's got these baggy trunks." <laughs> yeah. And so, it's, you know, basically he was opposed to the way they were portraying the Phantom. And when you think mm. about it, I've we've never seen the Phantom with any beard stubble anyway in all these years, right? Have yeah, very rarely. Rarity. Yeah. You know, sometimes he's stuck in <laughs> sometimes he's stuck in a desert someplace for you know a week, a week or ten days, and you know he's riding about with this particular adventure, and you say to yourself. Well, yeah, he should probably have at least a a two week, a one week shadow by now, uh, sure. you know, growing something, you know. Hey, uh, the physique of the man is clearly know, hit puberty, so I'm not sure what's going on. Yeah, well, you know what? One of those, I guess, in today's age of where, you know, okay, we talked earlier about some political correctness. Now, when people will sometimes say, well, you know, they they'll discuss just what we're hitting upon right now this particular subject of you know beard growth um what if you have to go to the bathroom uh, where do you go if there's nothing around you except an alleyway obviously if you get caught in an alleyway by a policeman relieving yourself against the garbage disposal unit they're going to arrest you <laughs> yeah so well you're um, gonna work your way out of those baggy trunks 
Oh, the baby <laughs> Yeah, I mean, maybe he's got a maybe he's got some kind of a diaper situation going on in there because you know he can't he can't go to the bathroom uh, although he's in the jungle. I mean, there's bushes all over the place. I mean, we have no idea, you know. So, uh, but you know, the one thing that I was, I, you know, after a while, the, you know, the Phantom. Everybody's got their ways of drawing the Phantom, I guess. Mm. Um, so the fact that the Phantom was out there, you just want to get that particular exposure for the character. Maybe the readership would go with it and say, "Hey, yeah, let's keep it going." Um, when they decided that they wanted to kill that Phantom. And then Lothar took over being the Phantom. Mm. Um, I'm not saying anything about race or anything to that particular effect. Just the fact that they were just so easy to kill the Phantom and just have somebody else become the next Phantom without it continuing that particular lineage the of having family. Phantom go to his own to his next of kin yeah. and turn into the Phantom. You know. So they were doing their own thing with the character and basically, um, you know, setting aside all the conventional rules that yeah. I guess we're I guess aware that's, of. That's, that's why I sort of alluded to King Features being more interested in the money rather than the actual, you know, legacy of the Phantom, <laughs> I suppose. Yes. No, in that sense, yes, because they figured, well, well we got this. I guess they found some, some, let's say, common ground where Hermes Press would be publishing some kind you know one some kind mm. of type of a story and dynamite would be doing something else so that they could coexist because i know moonstone had it for 10 years and then when they gave it up um dynamite was coming in but then i found out about hermes um and i have no idea to you know how well hermes press is doing these days with their reprints and whatever but you know you hope that everybody can, you know, still survive and make a living and not say, well, we can't publish this anymore because mm. we just don't have any funds. Well, um, I don't think, I don't think, her, um, Dynamite's not doing it anymore. They've given back or didn't oh, okay. renew their license or something like that. Um, but Doug was, Doug Calabo uh, was telling us in the last podcast that, uh, the way it's set up is that you can have multiple licenses in the same country. Which is the reason why Hermes and Dynamite and Dynamite and Moonstone had the license at the same time. Yeah, just for a short while, I think, and then Moonstone bowed out. Yeah, yeah. So you did some work with um with Moonstone. You did a couple of covers, I believe it was. Uh, no, for Moonstone actually, all I did, did you do was covers for Moonstone. I did. Um, their rates yeah. were so poor that <laughs> even though at one time. I have to admit, back in 2005, uh, I think I met Joe Gentile in 2004. He gave me a script. I just figured, you know what, I'll do it. I'll get some, you know, I'll do it because as, as a labor of love, more or less, in between my other assignments, just because I wanted to get a comic book, get myself out there in a comic book. And yeah. I ended up drawing the first, I want to say, eight pages of this one particular story. And then as it turned out, um, I was late on the deadline, and I hate to admit that, but the, the fact is, is that, well, I started working on this movie, okay, and I got in touch with Joe, and for about eight months or so, we had no communication. I never, I never got a deadline, a deadline date from him. I never knew when this book was supposed to come out. So then, when I finally got in touch with him, and I said, um, 
hey, Joe, when do you need this story? And I'm trying to remember what the time frame was, but all of a sudden it seemed like, oh, well, we need it in two months. And I said, what? I said, geez, two months, that's, you know, you got a 24-page story here, pencils and inks in two months. I don't even... I don't even know if I can pencil that, regard, uh, let alone ink it, because I'm doing this other project. Well, I, you know, he got a little upset with me, and I said, well, nobody ever told me what the deadline date was. I mean, do I, am I supposed to go ahead and pursue that from you? As a matter of fact, if I didn't get in touch with you now, what were you going to do? Call me up like a week before the book is uh, ready to go to press and say, hey, listen, when are you going to turn in that 24-page story? I mean, you know, so we, we kind of like – broke apart in a way after that, but then we still managed to do something else together where I think they had that, that phantom generations thing going on. Yeah. And there was a, and again, because the rates were so poor, I really felt like, well, I was doing this one story where well, just like the way that whole formula was set up for next generations was, uh, or phantom generations was, uh, you know, a piece of art on one side and the pros, whatever on the other side. So I had 10 full page illustrations to do for that book that I penciled and inked. And then I just figured, well, I'll make my money. I'll make my money back by selling the original artwork. Mm. And so um, I, I've sold, I've sold most of it. I think I might still have um, one or two pieces left from that particular Moonstone book. Well, when this goes live, I'm sure they'll be snuffed up pretty quickly. <laughs> I'm sure Stephen's ears have pricked up just now. <laughs> I'm actually ah. just looking the moonstone, just seeing which ones I, we're talking about here. <laughs> well, it's got a, it's got a Doug Clauber cover. As a matter of fact, the cover on that particular book is going to be similar to the cover that's going to be on the Lightning Strike comic yep. that Doug is doing the cover for. But he said that he had, for the lightning strike, he took that cover and he had reworked it and repainted it the way he had wanted it done in the first mm. place. But somebody else had colored it and he never really liked the way it came out. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and in, a, in the podcast world, anyone who's interested in the full story behind that one, um, make sure you've listened to the Doug Plowber interview from a couple of, uh, couple of issues ago. Yeah. Okay. So go. I also think, from memory, that Moonstone story, The Slave Trail, you donated a couple of the preliminary pages, I believe it was, at the at the um, auction at the dinner for the Lee Falk Memorial Ben Geller's Explorers Club dinner. Um, that particular, yeah, there was like, uh, well, are you saying from that particular issue of Moonstone that I did? Yeah, I know that yeah, because yeah. I, I think you donated about four or five and i ended up picking up two of them uh, okay. <laughs> so oh, I, cool. yeah i um so that's how I, that's how come i remember that part of the story was when you came to australia i think i have i might have um the first two illustrations left because the phantom i, I mean what in I, when you're talking about regrets in terms sometimes about selling artwork you know, I went literally according to the script where it said the Phantom was dressed up in this uh, particular, I guess, gear or habit that the uh, the Arabs would wear in the desert. And so, you know, he's completely covered, you know, in this tunic thing and he's got that headdress on. So all you really see are the eyes, the eyes and the shadow of the mask 
And, you know, unless you're really reading a Phantom story, you don't necessarily go, well, who is this guy? Oh, it's the Phantom. You have no clue. Mm. So, uh, you know, in, in hindsight, I say to myself, you know, I should have just left the headdress off. And at least if we, even with the tunic and all that stuff and all the baggy clothes, as long as we would have had his head being recognizable as the Phantom, I know that those two pages would have sold her it. <laughs> <It's Yeah. one> <laughs> you know, uh, but I do still have left that one page. I think it's the final illustration at the back end where the Phantom is basically throwing this guy across the panel. And there's about three guys coming up from behind him with some sabers and, you know, there's vegetation around and whatever. For some reason or other, I've never sold that one. It's still it's still here in my studio and just waiting for somebody to make me an offer I can't refuse. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you'll, be, you'll know when this uh, podcast goes live because I'm sure you'll get a couple of people that will ask you uh, about those pieces. Uh, well, I'll have to say also, uh, Jermaine, you had sent me three through issues with the uh, blank covers, more or less the circles where you want yes. to, sketch covers. to do some, some the sketch covers, yeah. sent that to me about a year ago, and I remember saying, well, I'll, um, I'll be able to get to it. And you said, well, there's no rush uh, when you have the time. <laughs> now that the Spider-Man newspaper strip is over, I obviously have more time than I did a year ago. Or six months ago. So, mm. uh, you know, if you and your buddies, and I don't know who the other two gentlemen were uh, that, uh, you know, were going to be involved in this, you know, we can discuss that, obviously, after the podcast. If you want me to, you know, go ahead and maybe, uh, you know, get started on something and we could sort of revisit that whole thing. Yeah. No, that'll be good. Now, getting back to that picture that you were just talking about, is it the one where, like, the, you said the Phantom's throwing the bad guy and there's the sword? No, the Phantom is um, the Phantom is on. Let's say he's kind of just a medium-sized full figure, and he's tossing this one arrow. Guess probably like maybe in an old over-the-shoulder move, and this guy is upside down and he's filling up the foreground of the frame. And, yeah. Uh, behind and the they... Phantom, there's three guys coming towards the Phantom. I guess you know, holding their swords. Well, that's one of the prelim pages that I've actually got. So. Um... Oh, you, you know, all the oh, you got the. I've prelim. got the I've got yes, one yes, of the yes, prelim. Yes. I've got the prelim page too. Okay, okay, I I, I misunderstood. I, I'm thinking, oh, uh, yeah, yeah, that's so, right. I remember the preliminaries for that also. Yeah, they were pretty. Yeah, bad. and then the other prelim page is the one with um, you got the phantom uh, in the middle ground with the boy in chains in the foreground. And you got the girl behind the phantom, and the phantom's holding yes. the sword with the flares. Right, right, right. Right. So that's the other prelim page. So, um, yeah, well, I might have to, I might have to talk to you about that other one because it would be nice to have the prelim. <laughs> let and let the, Stephen um... have the first conversation. <laughs> so, yeah, it's uh, always, yeah. It's always so nice. if you're listening nice to this, got... they might not be available because Stephen and I might have already picked them both up. <laughs> ah, so who's got the prelim and who doesn't? <laughs> I've got Jim's the prelim. Got prelim. I've, yeah. I've got nothing. That, got, I'm sorry. I, 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 as far as voices go, uh, who, who, which one of you has the prelim? Uh, Jermaine. Jim, oh, Jermaine, you've got the prelim. Okay, so yeah, sometimes it's really nice 
when you've got the prelim framed next to the actual original piece of artwork, I have to admit that uh, probably looks really <laughs> I have this one web of Spider-Man cover here, which is really the what's really neat about it is that I have the preliminary sketch, and then I've got a Xerox of the full pencils. Then I have the original ink cover that I uh, that was inked by Keith Williams, and then I also have this um, color guide. Which in those days they would, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen those color guides where they mark in, in a four color process, they mark them up with, you know, Ys and Rs and Bs. Yeah. And, and all, yeah. So I got this color guide for the cover. So I got these four pieces, which makes it kind of unique in the sense mm. that this is the entire process on how this cover came about, you know? Yeah. And I think, now, of for course, me, that's. that's like, that's one of the things I love about original artwork is having a look at the process, like you yes. know, like the, from the pencils or the roughs to the pencils to the to the inks to the colours or, or whatever. Is that you see just how much work goes into this page or this strip that you know it might take you twenty or thirty seconds to read and look over, but you know it's it's a piece of art. There's so much. Um, that's gone into that bit of work. Oh, yeah. Now, especially in nowadays, I mean, the edit this with the artwork in the comic books being as competitive as it is and the fact that comics have become so global uh, mm. with the internet. Um, we have this magazine that comes out every month called Previews. I don't know if you still yeah. have that. Really. Yeah, but in big, Previews, big you look at... You look at what's coming up, up and coming on the, some of this artwork, and you go, wow, that cover looks great. Who did that? And it's some guy from Turkey that I never heard of, or yeah. some guy from Argentina, or some guy from Ecuador, or from some guy from Spain. And there's so many artists out there that are so damn good that mm. you just say sometimes, you know, I mean, I'm not saying I, I'm, I'm humble about myself and about my ability, but I also know that I, I have the ability and I am better than. Well, I know who I'm better than, but I also know who's better than me. Put it that way. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so when I see a when I see a beautiful piece of art and I go, "Wow, that guy can draw rings around me." Holy mackerel. And then I see some guy getting a, a job where I'm going, "Why the hell is he drawing that book?" <laughs> I mean, I got in touch with this editor and I just asked him if I could do a fill-in and they said they have nothing and then this new kid comes out and I'm going, "What the hell is that?" This guy looks like junk. He's well, probably paying them. <laughs> well, the fact again, you know what? You when you're talking about pay, the fact is is that the new kid on the block, they can get him for let's say a bottom line rate, mm. and just the fact that just like any other kid that wants to get into comics, you know, these a lot of these new artists that are coming in, a they're still living at home with mom and dad. Okay, <laughs> they don't drive a car. They really have no bills to pay, no responsibilities, um, and except you know to make sure that they have some really good pizza and beer or soda. And, um, <laughs> then um, so they say, hey, if I could get into comics, I would do it for free. Now don't go <laughs> telling an editor that because they'll say, well, listen, we can only pay you like fifty dollars a page. No problem. No, I'll do it. Yeah, sure, no problem. So now I'm a veteran in my, in, you know, in this business. So they know that if they're going to hire me and get me to work, they, they have to give me a particular rate. And mm. I'm not saying that that's the only discretionary thing that 
prevents me from working more at the mainstream comics. But um, the fact is, is that, yeah, there's a lot involved. There's everybody, artists up to the eye of the beholder. You've got, I've got, there's guys that are still working at Marvel and DC that were there 20 years ago when I stopped working for them. And um, they're still doing their stuff now. And I look at the work and I go, you know, it kind of looks like the same work that they were doing 20 years ago with mm. a couple of minor little tweaks and whatever here and there. But stylistically, you can still recognize them from, you know, uh, you know, across the across the aisle to uh, a cover in, this, in a comic book shop. And so it really comes down to what the editors like and then also then what the fans like. And mm. if they like this guy and you might you might not particularly like this artist, but if the. If the book is selling, then the editors love it. And if the yeah. editors love, if the book is selling and making money, then the editors love the guy who's working on that book, who's selling it and making money. It's the bottom line, you know. If money, accounting, finances, sales—that's the bottom line because it's a business, plain and simple. Yeah. So, so I could I guess I'll go on, Jim. Oh, I was just going to—I uh, um, was going to change topics. So if you've got a, a related question, Dan, you go. <laughs> Oh, it was just building on that a little bit, I guess. Um, when you're talking about the practical side of the of the industry, um, obviously, uh, drawing comics is a lot more. Oh, well, for for us and uh, for you, I assume a lot more fun than uh, digging ditches and um, manual labour and that sort of thing. But it's no less, um, you know, it still has its impact on the body and that sort of stuff. And a common theme that we have talking to artists is. The sedentary nature of just sitting at a drawing board and drawing for hours and hours and hours a day. Um, we know that you've just had hip surgery in the last eight or nine months and that sort of thing. Have you got? Do you think that you know um, these decades of drawing have had a had an effect, a physical effect on on the body? Um, I have very comfortable chairs in my studio. <laughs> <laughs> the thing I'll tell you what the thing that contributed to the physical effects on my body. It is a four-letter word, and it's called food. Okay? <laughs> and so I would say by the fact that I am not exactly a specimen of fitness um, in general, uh, that I do need to get – I mean, my, I go to a chiropractor because I've got lower back issues. The lower back issues are probably um, accelerated and even exaggerated by the fact that even though I don't drink beer, I've got a big, I've got a big gut, okay? <laughs> and so when you're sitting over that drawing table and the weight and gravity of that belly is pulling on your lower back, <laughs> that's what's giving my back problems, okay? So, of course, just like, you know, when you speak to your doctor, when you get your physical once a year, and he says, Al, you know, you really got to try and lose some weight. I know, doc. I know. I'm trying my best. <laughs> You know, and so I did join a gymnasium and um, but I just like all the other times I joined the gymnasium, I kind of fell off the wagon and stopped going. But now I because I got incredibly busy, especially in the summer when Stan Lee's brother, Larry Lieber, retired finally at the tender age of 87 and said, you know what? I don't want to draw the Spider-Man newspaper strip anymore. Um, I want to write a book. And so I said, oh, really? So they first, of course, they said, hey, do you want to draw a pencil, the Spider-Man strip? And I said, 
Heck, I've been, I said, I've been waiting for you to ask me that for the last 10 years. <laughs> and, and, and he said, what? <laughs> I said, well, no joke. I mean, I said, Larry's 87. I kind of figured, you know, maybe at least by the time he got to be 80, he'd want to retire. <laughs> and I use this. I seriously use this as an example. I said, heck, at 80, George Olson, who drew the Phantom, said he had enough. He's 80 years old. You know, mm. as a fact, George Olson, on, when George was deciding to retire, uh, penciling the Phantom Strip, Keith Williams was the anchor, and Keith called me up and said, Alex, how would you like to draw the Phantom? And I said, really? Why? What do you got? He says, yeah, that George wants to retire from the newspaper strip. And, um, you know, I told him about you and how you've we worked together and how you've drawn the Defenders of the Earth so you know the Phantom, et cetera, et cetera. And I said, wow, that's, yeah, I said, yeah, I'd love to, I'd love that. I mean, what, what do I have to do? Well, you know, send some samples over to uh, King Features and I'll give you the contact information, et cetera. I think there was a fellow named Kennedy at the time who was. Yeah, Jay Kennedy. Jay Kennedy, right, right, right. Uh, you know, may he rest in peace, had the unfortunate accident. Um, but, um, you know, George Olson even called me up. And he said, hey, you know what, I can. I have all these reference stuff here from years upon years of like a morgue on everything that you need for the Phantom with, you know, all the animals and the jungles and the, you oh, know, wow. in the, that the Phantom has and the, you know, the cities and all that stuff. And I said, wow, that would be fantastic. Well, what the thing is, is that I have to be I have to make, make sure that I get to draw the strip. So then when I sent the samples in and they said, well. Um, I found out through the back circles that, you know, Jay Kennedy and Ulf Granberg were, you know, I guess they had some sort of an affiliation and Ulf really was pushing Paul Ryan to do the strip, the daily yep. strip. And so Paul Ryan got the daily strip. And I said, oh, wow. oh well, oh, oh, well, so much for that. I mean, hey, and I'm not knocking Paul. Paul was a great guy and he was a tremendous draftsman. OK. Mm. Uh Unfortunately, and I'm going to say this, and you can put it on record, I think personally that, you know, the Daily Phantom, the Phantom Strip is not what it was when Lee Falk was writing it, okay? And I will leave it at that. It's big shoes to fill. <laughs> well, it's big shoes to fill, but you know what? There is a There is a way to write newspaper strips, okay, where... You want to read those three panels and then at the end of that third panel, want to come back the next day and read the next three panels. Okay. Yeah. Lee Falk had that knack for being able to do that. Stan Lee had the knack to be able to do that when he was writing it. There's a trick. There's a trick to it. There's that, there's that intro panel which somehow gets you going and the last panel has to hook you into wanting you to come, make you come back. And I have to admit that, you know, I mean, I like looking at Mike Manley's artwork, and I look like looking at Jeff Weigel's artwork tremendously. But, boy, those stories just take forever to unfold, okay, <laughs> in my opinion. It just yeah. seems like, man, what, what – I mean, I can remember one time when Paul Ryan, may he rest in peace, was doing a Sunday – and it was in the, I think in the, that, the Baronkin land, okay, with, uh, uh, you know. Oh, Rex. Uh, Prince Rex. Rex, exactly, Prince Rex, with yeah. Rex and that, and that whole crew and that, you know, that uh, captain, that 
captain in the army there that's got a key. Yeah, she's got a key eye, keen eye on him and everything. And so they had all those things going on. They had something going on there where they were having a lunch or a dinner in the castle. And they were just this giant table eating dinner. I think they were eating dinner for three weeks. <laughs> and they were just at this table, panel after panel. And it was going nowhere. And I'm thinking to myself, gosh, why would I want to read this? I guess I'm, I, I'm a fan of the artwork. But, I mean, after a while, I'm just thinking, come on already. Let's move this along. Uh, you know, uh, it just, I, it, it, like I said, there's a knack to being able to draw, uh, to write a newspaper strip. And, uh, you know, the excitement that I remember that I had as a kid. When I was reading those Lee Fork stories, um, that excitement just, uh, you know, isn't here for me. Um, isn't there for me at this particular point. And I'm not saying that, hey, if I had the opportunity to draw the Phantom, I wouldn't take it. But maybe if somebody listens to this podcast and says, hey, you know, doesn't like the way it's kind of moving along. But, you know, that's not my fault. Uh, but mm. at the same King Features is happy with the way it's going. So then then you have to kind of go along with the flow. You know, if that's what you want to do, then that's what you do. Yeah. It's um I mean, how do you guys feel yeah. about the stories in the Sundays? Uh, I see I see where yeah. you're coming from. That like some parts do tend to drag at times. Um I I, I you, like there's a lot of stories that are a lot longer than other stories. So I I do understand that and you know Creators like Lee Fork, Stan Lee, they only come, you know, they only come along what once, you know, once in a lifetime. There's not many of them that um, that can do what they've done for however long, you know, for 60, 70 years that they've been around for. Um, it's huge, huge shoes to fill. We we actually talked to Keith Williams about um, filling in the steps of Cy Barry, like you know, like he was the drawer directly after Cy Barry, and he talked about how there was that that pressure of being the artist after um after after Cy Barry. So I, I don't know. It's probably it's a job that I wouldn't want. <laughs> <laughs> I, I you know what? I would take it in a heartbeat. Yeah. Seriously. Yeah. And so what you did actually? Is, did you actually um do some penciling for the? Sorry, Alex. Did did you actually do some penciling for a Sunday story at one point? Um, the I did pencil. Actually, I did some. I did a ghost Sunday for Terry Beatty once, which was yeah. kind of fun to say. I can actually say, you know what? I worked on a Phantom Sunday story in the <laughs> newspapers. Of course, I didn't get credit. Uh, Terry just got. He sent me layouts, and um, you know, sending me the layouts and then asking me to pencil it for him. I'm thinking to myself, wow, I don't understand. You know, these layouts were so comprehensive. Why didn't he just go ahead and ink the layouts? But I guess. You know, he would rather ink on pencil, and he just needed those. He couldn't spare the extra couple hours to to, to be pencil yeah. and tighten things up. So I did that for him. I didn't. Get do you remember what? Do you remember which one it was? Which panel? Uh, I'm trying to think. <laughs> that's, Sorry, Terry, that's. Well, that's that's a tough. Yeah, that's a tough one. I'd have to kind of look that co- up. But according it was, to. Oh, actually, According to Phantom Wiki, the story was Trouble in the Twelve Nations in about 2016, I guess. Okay. Why? Is, does it mention in there that I actually did something for a Phantom Sunday? Yeah. Yes. was an uncredited assistant on this story. Oh, well, that's cool. Yeah, it had this bald guy with uh, kind of a Fu Manchu, 
And, uh, yeah. you know, there were these, you know, there was, he, there was, I remember drawing these crowds, uh, with, you know, picket sticks and picket signs. And, you know, they were ha- gathering in some kind of an assembly and they had to escort somebody through the kitchens and the back ways to oh. make sure that this particular important person could get into the limousine and take off and whatever. So, Just give me two seconds, and I could probably it's, find it's, that Jermaine out. Jermaine, that's the original artwork. He's probably got your pencils there in a, in a <laughs> No, I don't have that, but I've got the actual. Uh, I've got a copy of the story on my computer. Oh. So going through the kitchen. I got to draw kitchen. Kit Walker. I got to draw Kit in his hat and in his overcoat from behind, more or less, in one panel. That I recall. But, well, well, just while Jermaine's searching for that, you've actually drawn Kit Walker and Diana into a Spider-Man story at one point, haven't you? <laughs> yeah, I did that kind of for a goof. <laughs> um, it was funny because, uh, you know, one of the things that I had asked about when I was working on the strip, and of course, not that Spider-Man is a King Features property, but it's a licensed thing. And the Phantom is also a King Features property. And I, I would ask, Every couple of years, hey, how come we can't do a crossover with Spider-Man and the Phantom in our, in our, in our Spider-Man strip? And they said something about, I don't know, there's some political thing going on or whatever. And, you know, they couldn't get they didn't really weren't really going to get into it. And I said, OK, fine. So I figured, you know what? Sure. I think Peter Parker was waiting online to go into this uh, movie theater because, uh I can't remember now if Mary Jane was performing or something was going on on the roof. And uh, so I drew Kit Walker and Diana standing on line in front of them. And uh, I ended <laughs> yeah. up getting that. I ended up getting that Sunday back in an art return. And I had donated it to the um, to the, you know, the Bengala dinner um, a couple of years ago, uh, you know, to be sold on auction for the kids hospital there. And uh I think it. I think it got a pretty nice price. It did. It did. I remember um, the person who brought it. He uh, is now involved with the free crew. I let oh. people. Uh, okay. it, it was Renee. Oh, it was Renee that bought it. Yeah. Yeah. Renee had bought a couple of pages from me when I was at the dinner there. Also, I remember at the end of the night. I think I ended up telling my wife Jody. I said, uh, "Wow, this." This Australian thing is going pretty good over here, man. I did great at the show today. The Should dinner, come I back. Sold about, I just sold about twelve pages. I mean, and then, and then, what's his name? Oh, oh, there was another gentleman who bought some artwork for me. Oh, is it Duncan? No, some, with, something with Bradley Peach. Oh, oh yeah, Bradley. Oh, Bradley. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah, Bradley and his wife. You know, he came by and he, he had like me. He had me put three or four pages aside, and he, I said. So you want me to hold these for you? He goes, well, you know, I got to ask the wife. I said, okay. <laughs> so then she came he, over. He is good at that. Said, the rest of us are not. <laughs> yeah. said, Honey, uh, take a look at these. And she just kind of smiled at me and she nodded. And he goes, okay, let's do it. <laughs> so, they, was, um, Joe's got this thing where whatever Brad gets to spe- uh, spend on the Phantom, she gets in diamonds and stuff like that. Uh, apparently what that's what her. Um, sorry? Joyful, isn't it? Joyful, yeah. So yeah, <laughs> joyful. Um, so yeah, so that that's the uh, that's the deal that they have is that our joyful gets it in diamonds and stuff like that. Um, yeah, she tried know. to tell my wife that, and I said, "Shh, don't listen, don't listen." <laughs> <laughs> I 
Uh, do you do you know what Bradley does for a living? He's uh, on the cusp of retirement, actually. Um, he's actually he, gone back to work, to tell you the truth. He, um, <laughs> he came back. <laughs> I was talking to him the other day, and he, he said he's back at work, <laughs> I think, to fund his uh, Queensland trip, I think, Dan. <laughs> yes. Uh, for an upcoming podcast, Bradley's going to do – well, this is why he's doing it, I'm sure. Um, he's going to do a tour of Queensland fans. This is how I know he's on the cusp of retirement. He's going to come around and, and visit a bunch of fans in our, in our collections. So looking forward oh, to that. Hi. Yeah, uh, well, you know what? I he's I mean, he's in the past he was able to acquire certain, you know, movie props and stuff like didn't he yes. get the yes. submarine from the Phantom he movie? Or he does. He's still got yes. it. Yeah. Holy mackerel. So when I hear stuff like that I'm going, Wow, this guy must have some well, he must be well to do, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> oh well either that or he's got a, a, a complete focus on his investment portfolio. <laughs> yeah, well you know what, if you have that investment portfolio and it's and it's reaping rewards and dividends, well then you can afford those particular things. My my bane is the fact that um, I collect superhero statues. Um, I try my goal has been to collect one statue or bust of every major character or even minor character that I've ever drawn in my 42 years in the business. Oh, wow. So, so um, I would, how's that yeah, going for you? Which phantom bust or statue do you have? Well, I have, uh, I've got one phantom uh, statue with the phantom and devil. And this is the one that was produced by real art productions, uh, based off of my designs. Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, uh, so yep. Yep, that it's got you know a nice purple box and it was sculpted by Sean Nagel, and uh, oh yes yes yeah so I I got that uh, so I'm really happy about that and I remember I think they only produced 500 and that he go and I remember saying hey listen uh, how you doing with this um, oh I'm trying to remember who the gentleman was that uh, was he was um, he headed off Real Art. He was the president of Real Art Productions. And I hate to say it, he's, I, in the last few years, he's passed away from, I don't know, heart failure or an unexpected illness. Okay. And at any rate, at the time, I said, well, how come we only did 500? He goes, well, I don't know how, you know, we don't know how it's going to sell. I said, but you just told me you sold out in like a week. I said, why don't you make another 500? I said, with all <laughs> the Phantom fans, in, you know, specifically in, Europe and in Australia, I'm sure you could sell, you know, or make another 250. He goes, well, you can't really do that. Something about second printings. I said, well, then don't make an exact second printing. Why don't you just do the Phantom and have them remove Devil from the piece, and it'll be the Phantom, and maybe have him standing on some kind of a base that looks like a skull. And he goes, well, yeah, we'll think about that, but they never went ahead and did it. So. Uh, mm. You know, unfortunately, but, you know, that's that statue at the time that they produced it was selling, I think, for one hundred and fifty dollars American. OK, I've seen it on eBay actually last year and it sold for about two hundred and fifty dollars American, which, quite honestly, the way these deals, electric tiki phantoms where they want twelve hundred and eight hundred and nine hundred dollars <laughs> for them. Um, I mean, I. I really enjoy the Phantom, and I wouldn't mind having one of those, but I'm not spending that kind of money. I'm sorry. (laughs) I didn't spend that much on my one either. (laughs) And um, let's see. The other thing that I have is I have a – oh, I have a a blue Phantom with the red trunks, red striped trunks from Icon. Since I bought the Phantom for Egmont, and he's in that particular blue costume. Is that the one where he's, he's standing with his two guns drawn? 
Yes, yes. Yep. And you know what? Here's the thing. I would really be tempted to want to get the red one and the gray one, but it just bothers me when all they do is give you the same pose and they give you a new paint job. Yeah. So mm. I feel like, geez, I'm going to spend, okay, I think the statue was only about $130 American or 135 American, but I'm thinking, geez, you know what? I'm going to spend another $270 to have the same Phantom, but just in a different paint job. Like, mm. I don't, mm. I didn't, so I didn't get the other two. Although, I mean, I wouldn't mind having them. Maybe if I could get them less, you know, cheaper, like instead of 270, maybe if I could get them for, 200 or 180 i would do it i just couldn't see spending that kind of money on yeah i've only got two myself i've yeah. only got two then, of the colors and then the, and then the other thing that i have is the uh the bust that randy bowen did oh, oh yeah beautiful yeah it's a nice piece um i did manage i wanted to get the i think i think icon did it also the phantom on hero oh, yes that is that is an excellent statue you know what? I'll tell you. This is my, my friend Pete Klaus is such a wonderful guy. He calls me up. He sends me sends me cards that he makes up in Photoshop, phantom yeah. cards for all kinds of occasions. He'll call me up and he'll say, "Hey Al, I got something for you." I said, "Yeah, Pete, what is it?" Well, I got this guy and he's made these beautiful coins. He always comes up with these coins, yeah, and, uh, with the phantom on it and stuff. These collector's pieces. And I said, "Well, gee, Pete, that's great. I appreciate it. You don't have to do that." No, no, no. You know, you're my friend, and you know, I know you love the Phantom, and I want to, you know, I want to, I, I like you to have this. So he, you know, he's just such a great guy, and um, you know, I always try to, you know, try to reciprocate by giving him some artwork because I don't know what else to do. But <laughs> in one particular case, there was an American vendor on eBay who was selling the Phantom on Hero statue for half the price of what it would have cost me to get it in Australia. Oh, wow. So the Australian one would cost me probably about 300 to $325 American. Yeah. And I didn't want to spend that, okay? And so I had to ask Pete. I said, Pete, did you um, – I even asked Glenn Ford. I thought maybe he had some kind of a uh, an in into getting <laughs> something like that a little less expensively, but he said he didn't. I said, oh, okay, well – I don't think I want to get it then, or I'll wait until I get a break. But what happened was some vendor on eBay was selling that particular Phantom on Hero for about $140. Oh, wow. Something like that. And I'm on a buy it now, and I, I and I immediately called Pete, and I said, Pete, did you ever get that statue? He goes, no, nah, I was supposed to try and get it from Australia, but, you know, it hasn't come through or whatever. I said, would you pay $140 for that statue? He goes, oh, definitely. I said, well, look, I'm going to buy this statue, and I'm going to have them send it to you, and then you can pay me back. He goes, are you sure? Do you have it? I said, no, I don't have it, but I want to finally be able to say, Pete, I got something for you. Okay? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I bought it. I had him I had him send it to, to his address, and uh, he paid me back, and, you know, he's. I guess he's eternally grateful um, I'd love to have that statue again if it ever comes my way that it comes down in a particular price range. Uh, uh, yeah, I definitely would want to get that statue of the Phantom, sure. Mm. So, so, can we go back to this Sunday? Was it? I think I might have identified the Sunday. Okay. Did it have Lothar at the beginning? Lothar was in it, yes. 
So, and they're going through the crowd, and in the background there's, like, um, protesters, and then the Phantoms in... Um, the Phantoms in panels two, three, and four, and then the last panel, and then he's fighting with the big uh, Hojo, which is the big the big guy in a suit. No, actually, it's that storyline, but I think it's one or two Sundays after that. Okay, after that. Where, where you know, you mentioned that panel where they're walking through the kitchen. I think in the Sunday that I drew. That was almost like a flashback panel where they had, you know, a caption that said, you know, we did this or that. Because the only time I got to draw the Phantom in my Sunday was when, like I said, it was a a panel from behind, uh, Kit Walker from behind walking with somebody else to his right. Kit Walker's on the left, and they're walking through some alleyway or something. And uh, I had drawn it pretty much with standard lighting, but I think then Terry, while he was inking it, put it into a heavier shadow. So was he in costume or was he in his oh, Kit no, Walker just costume? In, no, just in uh, you know, just in that particular outfit where sometimes the Phantom decides to walk among men. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you know, he has to put on his hat and he's got to put on his coat. So yeah, that's the only way I got to draw was in the hat and the coat. Uh, yeah, no, I don't know if I've got that one. I can't. I don't know which one it is. Sorry, I'll have to keep. I might have to send you the stories, and then you can tell me. <laughs> oh yeah, by all means, by all means. Or if you give me a, if you send me a link where I could go ahead and take a look at it, identify it, and then let you know which Sunday it is. That one might might make it easier. Yep, not a problem. We'll sort that one out as well. Actually, okay. No, I think I think I know. I think I might have found the one. So, I think it might be the 4th of March, 2016. You know what? If you say, if you say it so, <laughs> then I him. believe you. <laughs> <laughs> he, he's I'll, usually I'll right on these things. I'll send it to you, and then um, you can, yeah. uh, <laughs> and then you can um, what do you call it, uh, let me know if I'm right or wrong. Yeah, that's cool. So, Alex, you must be um, – Stephen sort of read out the your credits at the very start of the conversation, and um, you must be one of, if not the most um, varied uh, publication company anyway in terms of the, the different companies you've produced fandom artwork for, by, whether it's Marvel or Egmont, Moonstone, Lightning Strikes, Fru Covers, Hermes Covers, and we're talking about the Sunday. Like, I, don't, I don't know if there would be any other artists that have produced – work for such a separate individual artwork yeah you've got to be pretty proud of the the reach you've had i guess in that sense i'm proud of that but i would be i would be much prouder if every company that i worked on for the phantom would send me at least a hundred thousand dollars to put into my (laughs) (laughs) okay i'm being greedy just let's say 10 Yeah, no, it's you know it's funny because when you when you mention it in that particular uh, light, um, uh, yeah, it kind of makes my brow knit because I'm thinking, wow, you know what? He's right. I've done the Phantom for a whole bunch of different companies in that particular mm. sense. And again, even if you just do it once, it's part of that. Yeah, that's part of your credits. Like I said, mm. like you said, I ghosted. I ghosted the Sunday for Terry, so you can I can say. Yeah, I worked on a Phantom Sunday once. Uh, oh, really? Yeah, so I got that under my belt. And as you said, with the Hermes Press, it was a variant cover. 
Uh, Moonstone, yep. I did that one issue with all those 10 illustrations. Um, I um, did the Defenders of the Earth. Um, Could we ask you some questions about the Defenders of the Earth? Because I would love to pick your brains more about the Defenders of the Earth. Before, yeah, right. Um, go ahead. Yeah, let's go. Yeah. That, I, well, you, you finish what you were saying, but I do want to swing back to Defenders of the Earth. Sure. Go ahead. I, uh, did you have anything else you wanted to say regarding um, the work you've done? Oh, no. I think I just, you know, I think I just left out the fact that I was uh, I've done some covers now for Fru. And yep. as of this moment, uh, Glenn Ford has sent me a story by um, Andreas Ericsson. Um, yep. And so, you know, he gave me a deadline of, I guess, July 1st. So, <laughs> you know, I'll be get I'll be get I'll, I'll get started working on that so that we can, you know, at least sometime this year, I'll have a story and then obviously my own cover for that particular fruit. Cover. Mm. And you've also, and this isn't the first time you've worked with uh, Andreas Ericsson as well. You did a um, a jam story for with yeah, him, what was it for called? Team Blood Phantom, something like that. Blood Rain. Blood, Blood Rain. Blood Rain. Yeah, that was fun. That was a uh, wow. I tell you, I, he considering that was the fir- I think that was his first script. I it's his first he, published he a, script. First published script, right? I mean, he had really a, had a good handle on how to write a comic book story. Um, Whereas I have to say that, uh, you know, some some of the European writers and, you know, he is Swedish, um, but some of the Swedish writers and, you know, working for Egmont, as you know, they they do write they they do write a lot of copy. I mean, you've got seven, (laughs) eight, nine pages and there's a lot of dialogue and some of the artwork gets really, really tiny in those panels. And even when I first started speaking with Dick Giordano about working for Egmont, he goes, well, it's a whole different ball game over there in Europe because they, even though it's a comic book, they almost have a newspaper strip mentality about how to tell a story. It's not fancy stuff. It's just move the story along. Yes. Yeah. Oh, okay. And yeah, you can see that when you look at, you know, some of the reprints um, that, you know, Egmont comes up with and even the newspaper stories. Yeah, it's pretty much a lot of the same camera angles, nothing really all that varied. Although I have to admit, when Graham Nolan took over the Sundays, I thought that those were probably some of the most powerful, some of the most dynamic looking Sunday mm. pages that had, you know, been published by King Features Syndicate. And I will I will give him some more praise also by saying when he was doing the uh, uh what is it, the Rex Morgan M D strip. Even though that was a quiet strip, I mean, boy, he used a lot of great camera angles. Uh, kind of reminded me of, uh, you know, the Leonard Star on stage type stuff because he was using camera angles and all kinds of really cool stuff in his in his portrayals. So, yeah, yeah. kudos to Graham Nolan on that. But really loved, the- really loved his work that he did for on the fan. Kind of wish he did a little bit more. Um, but, yeah. Well, he's been quoted. He's been quoted as saying that um, at the time that he did, at the time that he accepted doing the Phantom Sundays, uh, he had spoken with the whoever the editor was at the time and said, "Listen, um, you know, if the dailies ever come up, you know, I'd like to do the dailies and the Sundays together. So I'll stick on the Sundays, but when the dailies come up, you know, I want to do the dailies." And at the time. I think he was doing the Sundays for about six or seven years. And finally, the assignment opened up on the dailies. 
and they didn't give it to him, and he got pretty disappointed with that, and that's why mm. he said, you know what, I'm not doing this anymore. So, mm. but, you know, again, that's just the way things go. Sometimes in uh, whatever entertainment factors of our industry, whether it's comics or if it's Hollywood or if it's television, you know, people say things, you count your chickens, and then they don't happen. So it's better off not to count your chickens. Um, yeah, it's so, there's in talking to you. There's some real uh, sliding door moments where, you know, uh, where what could have been if things had happened slightly different with you know the old sliding doors movie. So it's really interesting hearing those. Yeah, I mean, it you know it's hap- I think it's kind of it's kind of happened to all of us in some way. Shape, mm. Um, but at any rate, let's just not digress uh, again from the defenders <laughs> of the earth questions that you have. Sorry, what is the difference? Is there any other differences like working like with Team Phantom Man, with, uh, you know, with the American even through and stuff like that? Are there... Do you, you know, are there any other differences or or points of difference that, uh, you know, you could, like, let us, you know, talk to us about? Oh, well, let's see. Uh, I had to make those particular adjustments working Mm. when I got those, you know, scripts. And first of all, the way they write scripts was always a little bit um, disconcerting because it made more work for the artist in terms of some reason or other, instead of writing when we used to do 32-page stories, instead of writing, they'd write page one, panel one, and then the next page, the next panel would be panel two, and it would end with, like, 157. They didn't give you any page breaks. So <laughs> yeah. I would have to read the entire story and sort of make little thumbnails in the margins just to kind of figure out where I want to end that particular scene because... One of the things about good storytelling is, is that you you don't want to end you don't want to draw something in the middle of a scene on the last panel of a page, make you turn the page, and then the first panel ends the scene. That scene should be mm. if you want to make a page turner, you have to have a reason for getting to that point where you want the guy to turn the page and then keep mm. going, rather than or let's say oh I should say the reverse rather than ending a scene in the the bottom tier of panels on the one panel on the left and then you start a new scene at the bottom of the page and i think that's just bad storytelling so i'd have yep. to kind of try to you know juggle the amount of panels i would get on a page and sometimes i'd go wow this page would really be good with six panels instead of seven or eight but if i did that then i knew that i'd have to take another page somewhere down the line and crunch it by adding another panel or two just so that I could maintain that panel count. Um, sometimes I did also find that I even, in a few instances, which I don't recall, but I do recall adding a panel, where I then let the editor know, listen, I added a panel here just to help in the transition from point A to point B because there wasn't one. And somehow yeah. the way it was set up, it would, you know, or even let's say change a scene where I've seen some Eggmont stories done by other people and i'm not going to i'm not i can't mention names but i will say this that let's say for example if there's nine panels on that particular let's say eight panels on that page you know you got the top two you got the bottom you got the middle tier and there might be three panels 
And in the first two panels, the scene ends, and then there's a new scene starting on the third panel of the middle tier. And I'm thinking, wow, that's a really crappy way to start a new scene. Why don't they just start the new scene on the bottom row? End it in the middle, and instead of starting a new scene, it's almost like, well, they just started drawing it as it came to them, and they didn't really give it that much thought. And, of course, I could... Again, I don't remember which artist this this happened to, but you know, if I had a discussion with him, he might just say, "Well, you know, the scene ended, the new scene started, no problem. It, it, I'm telling the story." And yeah, and and and, and it, I guess it works. I just, I guess I'm maybe I'm opposed to it because that wouldn't be the choice that I would make. Uh, yeah. Maybe I would speak to a couple of other people that might agree with me, and some would be opposed, but. Hey, that's why we have that that great famous word in our dictionary called opinion. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so you know it's my opinion, and my opinion is not you know is not uh, you know etched in stone, or it's mm. might not be the best. It's just mine. That's all. Mm. So how do you find it going from the twenty eight thirty pages down to twenty two pages? Oh uh, well, you know it seemed. At first, I was concerned because I thought to myself, wow, you know, some of these writers sometimes, you know, when you got a 32-page story and you're averaging eight panels a page, that's a lot of story. I mean, you could easily have turned that into uh, two stories yeah. and spread it out, made a, you know, made a 44-page story out of it, and then, uh, you know, still told a good story. Case in point, when, I, when it came out and through, um, was it Fruit or Egmont? No, it came out in Egmont first and then in Fruit. It was 1943, part one All and right, two. Yep, yep, yep. Okay, now what happened was, I think it was Kleisler Manthe had written that as a 32-page story, which meant, you know, I mean, I drew it in two parts. Uh, uh, Mick Saul uh, sent me an email and said, hey, listen, I've got a two-parter for you. Because we're going down, we're taking this 32-page story, we're bringing it down to 44 pages, two parts, and he sent me the script with some notations where the first 14 pages, the first 18 pages was going to make up part one, and then the next 14 pages was going to be part two. So I'm looking at this and I'm going, wow, this is great because it leaves me room to do five mm. panel pages. I could get a nice big introductory splash panel into each part. I yep. could have some big panels to showcase some action. And um, I had a great time doing that when you think, well, it was my job then to take 14, especially in part two, to take 14 pages and to turn it into 22 pages. So I could really use my creative storytelling juices there and terms of how I was presenting those stories that those panels. And I think overall the two parts work really well together. Yeah. I've just actually read, uh, as part of this podcast, I actually just recently reread it probably about a week ago, um, or maybe two weeks ago. And, um, yeah, enjoyed it, you know, two, two years down the track, just as much as I did when I first read it. Oh, thanks. Thanks. And I remember great. those big panels as well. So, um, that was one of the things that, that caught my attention was the big panels. Yeah, I especially liked um, – there's a couple of panels that I really liked in there. Um, well, even just the first part. The first part has the Phantom sort of on uh, – there's this guy in a boat in mm. this little 
and they got the bridge and the phantoms climbing this sort of hillside to get into the city because he was going to, you know, meet somebody there. And on page two, he, you know, the top panel on the left, he's, you know, standing there and, you know, going into the subway car. And there's a couple of Nazis, you know, sleeping on the back, you know, on the bench there. And there's a mother and a little child on the right hand side. And then in the second panel, he's, uh, you know, sitting, he's got the window seat and he's looking out. And, you know, the little girls kind of looking at him sort of quizzically wondering, who is this guy? And uh, then in the third panel was this big, you know, horizontal panel with the train coming in. You got Nazis there with some cannons and, you know, you got some environmental buildings in the background. And it was some fun stuff to draw with that locomotive where at one panel I remember there was, I put the locomotive on the left-hand side. It's almost like a foreground prop and Kit Walker and the guy that he was meeting were, you know, past the locomotive standing on the platform. Um, and some of that stuff was really fun to draw. I like that scene where he's in the hotel and there was the receptionist, you know, with that funky little phone there. And, mm. uh, you know, he's asking to see the ledger and she seems to be flirting with him a bit. And then she sees the skull ring and her eyes get really wide. And then after he leaves, you know, she makes a phone call. And, uh, yeah, so that kind of stuff was fun. Um, you know, they had, uh, you know, there was some nice action panels in there. Uh, lots of Kit Walker, which quite honestly didn't bother me just to, uh, you know, not to even draw the Phantom in costume. Kit Walker by himself is a force of nature. So yeah. I mean, get, to get to draw him in a hat, to get to draw the overcoat with the folds and the real clothing and everything, I, that's a lot of fun. And mm. then that opening page panel of part two, which was a montage shot with a phantom holding a top machine gun. And uh, you got the big close-up of the Nazi there with the small sunglasses on and the hat and the whole bit, flames in the background and the, and the uh, independence, you know, the, the, the revolutionary fighters there and down on the bottom of the panel. Uh, yeah, that was some, there was some fun stuff that I got to draw, even though I had to research the time period and get the, you know, get that stuff right again with the phones and the cars and all that kind of stuff. It was, uh, I really enjoyed that one a lot. Does, when you're talking about having to research the 1940s and Second World War and stuff like that, does, is that one of the harder things about drawing the Phantom is the fact that you're dealing with the Phantom that has a 500 year reach where compared to, say, something like, uh, you made mention of, um, of Daredevil, where he basically is in a you know a couple of block radius for all of his adventures. Oh, definitely. I mean, one thing about uh, you know, I remember when uh, Mick Saul took over editing the Phantom. He says, "Well, what kind of stories do you like to draw?" And I said, "Modern ones," <laughs> <laughs> uh, because you know when I see some of those Phantom stories that that were done in the past, and you know. Um, yeah, the research that goes into drawing all those costumes and time mm. periods. Uh, case in point, I think it was the third Phantom story that I drew for Egmont that was inked by Dick Giordano, and it took place in Russia during the time of Catherine the Great. Yep. And, uh, wow, that was difficult because I did research on that stuff, and the interior of the palace walls, there's always tapestries and these weird you know, rugs, carpets all over the place and tiled floors and everything was just so ornate. 
Um, it's just that was a really difficult story to draw, and that's why I had asked Dick if he would help me uh, by inking it because after I had penciled it, I was spent. I mean, it was just, I was just, I didn't want to go back and have to, you know, revisit that whole thing again and do all that detail. I mean, it was there enough in pencil, and, you know, he did a great job inking as he always did. But, uh, boy, those stories are hard, very hard. Mm. So, um, you prefer the modern stories because, um, you know, they're, they're set today and uh, you might know them a bit more. What about um, stories set in the future? This is my segue to try and get, get us back to Defenders of the Earth, which is kind of set <laughs> in the future. Um, how'd you go with, um, well, first off, how'd you get the, um, the gig of um, doing Defenders of the Earth? Um, well, I got to Marvel in 1986. Um, it was February of 1986. Um, well, I, I'll, I'll just backtrack a little bit to November of 1985. I was working on Superman stories at that time. And um, as were a number of others. And at one point we had gotten word that the uh, higher ups, you know, the vice president, the president, uh, Dick Giordano, who was the creative director, they were all going to take out the Superman people to lunch. And we said, oh, fine, a nice lunch. Why? Uh, well, we have things that, you know, we want to talk about, etc. I said, OK, fine. So we go to the lunch. And after they feed us, they let us know that, you know, we're not going to be drawing Superman anymore because... <laughs> The sales have been dwindling rapidly, and, uh, you know, they need to bring in some new blood to draw and write Superman. So there was a, you know, John Byrne was one of the writers and artists. Marv Wolfman was a writer. Jerry Ordway was another artist. Um, those guys were pretty much going to, you know, be the showrunners on Superman, and hopefully that was going to, you know, spark sales. But they said, don't worry, we'll have plenty of work for everybody. Oh, okay, fine. So I just went ahead in November and December, January. I had three more assignments of Superman work at that time. And when I'm, and I think it was the second week of February, I bring in this, the last half of this one Superman story. And the editor, Julie Schwartz, says to me, I don't, I only have one more Superman story left. And I have to give that to Kurt Swan because, you know, with his, with his history in Superman, I owe it to him because it's the last one that he'll probably draw. I said, yeah, oh, yeah, no problem. So he says, go see the freelance coordinator, which I did. And she says, oh, I'm so sorry. I can't. I don't have anything for you right now. But, you know, hang in there. We'll find something for you. Now, mind you, this is 1986. My son is uh, I'm married. My son is four years old. I've got mouths to feed. And so, well, I'm not saying necessarily saying I panic, but. Fortunately, where I lived, um, where I lived in Long Island, New York, um, John Ramita Sr., the renowned John Ramita Sr., lived in the town next to mine. And I went to high school with his sons, John Ramita <laughs> Jr., who became the artist that he is today, and his older brother, Victor, who decided to go into science. I think he became a chemistry engineer or something like that. And so I was, you know, I got to meet Victor in, in, in the Honor Society in high school, etc. And so we were, you know, I wasn't being forward enough to say, hey, um, is your father, you know, John Ramita? Because, you know, that's not really a common name. I didn't do that. But some of my friends said, hey, you know what? His father is John Ramita and he draws Spider-Man. I said, yeah, really? That's his kid. Wow. OK. So then at one point we got to be friends and uh, he said, hey, listen. And he found out that I drew. And he says, hey, listen, you know, my dad draws Spider-Man. I said, yeah, I know. 
would you like to would you like to meet him sometime i said sure if you can set that up but you know i know he's busy i don't want to impose on his time oh no 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 uh you know uh you know we'll work something out so within a couple of weeks i remember i got into i got to go to his house i it was close enough where i could ride my bicycle there in about 15 minutes and um i got there and i got introduced to john ramita senior his wife uh the kids were there john jr who was probably came up to my kneecap. He was a really small guy. Um, and um, so, yeah, I got to meet John at the, he got into his studio. It was actually his studio, I think was even smaller than mine, but his drawing table was in there. And on his drawing table, he had one page of a fantastic four that he was penciling because Jack Kirby had just left Marvel and uh, you know, the fantastic four assignment went to John Romita and so he was penciling that, and he was also inking The Amazing Spider-Man over Gil Kane, one of my favorite artists. So I'm in I'm in a room with John Romita Sr. I, I'm seeing him draw the Fantastic Four, and there's a page of Spider-Man artwork by Gil Kane, and he's inking that. So you know I'm like a kid in I'm like a kid in a candy mm. store, okay? <laughs> um, and so we just talked a little bit about comics, and you know I showed him some of my work, and he says, Hey, you know what? Just if you want to do this, you know, you got to put in a lot of hours and it's not easy. But, you know, if you got the passion for it, you know, nobody can, you know, you can't stem that tide very easily if you want to tell stories. So um, at any rate, so I got to know him that way. And um, I'm using that as a backdrop to say that when they gave me that final, when I turned in that final Superman story at DC, I immediately called up Marvel Comics, asked for John Romita and said, John. You know, I just did my last work for DC. Do you have anything for me at Marvel? And he said, yeah, come on over. He says, just leave me some samples. He says, the guys in our, the guys here at Marvel are so late 90, 90% of the time that if you, you could make a living just doing fill-ins. I said, <laughs> oh, well, fine. I'll come on over. So I walked over. It was maybe about a 20-minute walk in, the New, in New York City and, you know, got into John's office. You know, we exchanged pleasantries. Etc. I left my work there. I was only there for maybe about 15 minutes. Um, I don't even think I got to meet anybody else at the time. Uh, but he just said, hey, listen, you know, I'll make sure that people come in my office all the time asking me if I have somebody that they can, you know, that I can steer towards them to do a fill in. So I'm sure you'll hear from us pretty soon. I said, great. So this was a Tuesday. <coughs> Excuse me. This was a Tuesday in that particular week. And by Thursday, um, I got a phone call from an editor at Marvel and he wanted to know if I wanted to fill in on Iron Man. He needed one Iron Man story. So I said, sure, let's do it. So I got up there. Um, I did the Iron Man story. Then they wanted to keep me busy. So he started giving me some more covers. And then he goes, hey, listen, I got a, I got something for you, a series for you to draw. I said, really? Okay, cool. What is it? He goes, it's called Defenders of the Earth. And it's based on a cartoon. And it, I said, really? And he says, yeah, it's got the Phantom and Flash Gordon and Mandrake and Ming the Merciless. And I said, wow, that sounds really cool. And I said, who's writing it? He goes, well, the first issue is going to be pl plotted by this new writer we have named Bob Harris, who was working in the mailroom, became a writer, and then eventually became editor-in-chief of Marvel for a while. And now I think he's a big wig at D.C., but at any rate, this was one of his first stories that he was plotting, and Stan Lee was going to do the dialogue. 
And I said, wow, I'm going to work on a book. I didn't say I'm working on a book with Bob Harris. I said, I'm working on <laughs> Dan Lee. How cool is that? So then when I, when I accepted the job, um, again, it was a plot, plot style. And, yeah. um, um, but because it was Defenders of the Earth, a licensed property, they gave me a stack of reference as thick as a, wow, if you, you know, here in America, we have some telephone books that are probably about three inches high in <laughs> depth, okay? Just so, so big. It's like a big encyclopedia. But anyway, I got a stack of reference material for how to draw everything in the, the, wow. the DOTE universe. And so whenever some kind of a script reference came into something, I had to go thumbing through the stuff, make myself aware of it so that I could draw everything exactly the way it is on the cartoon. Um, one of the benefits of working on that book also was the fact that Fred Fredericks was inking it. Mm. And so regardless of how I drew Mandrake, Mandrake ended up looking like a Fred Fredericks Mandrake. <laughs> because well, after all, he, Mandrake yeah. was his baby. You know, yeah. He did it for 50 years. Something like that. I think Anthony Tolan, who is a big shadow aficionado expert, etc., and publishes The Shadow and Doc Savage for Condé Nast, uh, he just, I think he had just mentioned, mentioned something about Fred Fredericks because he was, oh yes, he was, Put, um, uh, on Facebook, he was posting original Phantom artwork that he's got. Yes. His, and one of the pages was uh, George Olsen pencils and Fred Fredericks inks. And I think hmm. he mentioned that Fred had been doing Mandrake for 48 or 49 years. Yes, so he's... It's an amazing run. He started in the... A, holy mackerel. It started um, in 1965 and the Sunday strip uh, finished in 2002 and the daily in 2013. Yeah. And then wait, I think either, I think shortly after that, he got sick and passed away. Is that correct? Mm. Yeah. He yeah. actually, tomorrow is, is his anniversary of, uh, which is March the 10th. Well, yeah, that's Sunday for you. Well, no Monday. Yeah. Yeah, Sunday for you. Yeah, it's our so, Sunday too, mate. But it's yeah, yeah, our Sunday. So, which is two days for you, to one day for us, uh, is actually his anniversary of his passing. And and what year was that? Uh, in 2015, so four years ago. Oh, it was just four years ago. Okay. And he was what? He was over 80, wasn't he? Um, he was born in 29. So who's good at maths? 28. So it's. 30 to 15. Yeah, yeah, he was... Uh, 86. Going on, yeah, about 86, yeah. Wow. You know, it's funny because when I first met John Ramita Sr., it was 1969, and he was born in 1930. So he was 39 years old. When I think of the fact that I'm 66 right now, and I'll be 67 in August, and I think, you know, aside from the fact that my body has gone to hell, my mind is still very young. Okay, and then I think I met John when he was 39 years old, and look how great he was when he was 39. <laughs> I still have age now, fire to be as good as John Romita Sr. because his ink line was liquid gold. I mean, gosh, that guy could handle a brush, unbelievable, just mm. gorgeous. I saw him do a phantom sketch for someone some sometime, but I didn't. It came out pretty good, but I didn't want to criticize him because he gave him eyes you know 
Yeah. Yeah. So that that could have been that could have been the opportunity for the uh, for the student to uh, teach the master. I didn't want to go there. Uh, <laughs> well, I still remember. I, the Phantom never, Batman didn't have eyes. He had the white slits. And then yep. most of the superheroes that wore masks had the white eye slits. And then the Phantom had the big triangular white eyelid, you know, slits. Um, and of course, that follows suit then when you say, well, he who looks at the Phantom's eyes shall die a horrible death. The fact mm. is, in the comics, he has no eyes. But in reality, he does, which is kind of weird, you know? But that, mm. the Phantom was the first one to, to do all of that. He set the trend for all of those other um, uh, superheroes. That's right. Exactly. Um, so, uh, so, so you so did four way. stories for Defenders of the Earth. Four that were published, but there was a fifth one. And you've <laughs> still got the artwork for that, I'm led to believe. Uh, you, you are correct. I have... Uh, what happened was, on the fifth one... Uh, let's see, we did, well, we did five, and Fred Fredericks inked them all, and, you know, when I first started working at, at Marvel, and even at DC, uh, if I worked with an inker for an extended period of time, I usually tried to make arrangements with the inker, hey, listen, uh, on art returns, I get back 14 pages out of a 22-page story, you get back eight, so that's kind of like one-third, two-thirds. So how yeah. about if every three issues we do, I keep two and you keep one? And they'd say, like with Keith Williams, I did that with Keith. I still have about 16 complete Spider-Man, Web of Spider-Man stories in my uh, closet. Okay. <laughs> uh, and I'm sure the, the, the issues that Keith got, he, I know he sold all the pages already. Um, but at any rate, um, so with Fred, I didn't want to do the one-third, two-thirds because I respected him that much. And I said, Fred, listen, how about if I do, I keep one and you keep one? And he says, oh, okay, that'd be great. So somehow it worked out, though, that I got all four covers. He never got oh, wow. So I've got the four covers, but I kept issue one because it was issue one. And Stan Lee yeah. did the dialogue. And then I got the third issue, which was probably my favorite issue where – the Phantom had his brother. Mm. Oh, yeah. With, yeah, with the horn helmet in the cave. That was such a fun issue to draw and a fun, fun issue, uh, fun story even to see on television. And yeah. then at the fifth, and then he got the fourth one, which was more of a Mandrake type story. So that was good for him. But in that fourth Defenders of the Earth, there was a two-page segment, basically uh, going about talking about the origin of Mandrake the Magician. Yeah, And I remember the writer who was the editor on that Iron Man book and now became my sort of my editor that he and I took me under his wing type thing. He said, you know, I don't know too much about Mandrake. I said, but you know what? Um, I'm pretty familiar with him. I could probably do plot some kind of an origin story in here in these two pages if that's all I got. He goes, yeah, go for it. So the two pages where we're talking about the origin of Mandrake, I ended up doing the plotting for. And, oh, wow. Cool. Okay. Did and Fredericks, I, uh, did Fred uh, correct you on anything? No, he didn't. He just, I mean, he inked it. And of course, as I said, you know, Mandrake looked like a Fred Fredericks ink. Uh, mm. Yeah. Uh, with that cool little mustache and the whole nine yards, you know. Um, but at any rate, um, then when we got to the following issue, um... I got the plot, 
for the first six pages. And I said, okay, well, I just finished. Um, I just and then after so I drew them <clears throat> and I brought them in. And again, there's nothing's been written here yet. It's just uh, the artwork. The writer has to go in then and then let's say if I have some particular notes in the margin um, to give him some cues as to what I'm doing. If it might have deviated slightly from his plot just to help him along in dialoguing the, uh, the, the panel. Um, I bring it in and he says to me, hey, listen, I'm really swamped right now. I just have an outline here about what the rest of the story is. How about if you uh, plot it and draw it? I said, oh, wow. what? I got, I said 16. Now I think it, I think the story is 20. I want to say it's 25 pages. So six, I didn't, I think I, so basically make a long story short. Then I plotted 19 pages. And of course, I mean, I put more, I had notes in the margin all over the place in his outline. There were key moments that I had to get to. So that yep. kind of was now I'm basically the road guy. I'm filling in and mentally I'm thinking, how am I going to go about this? So I had to kind of find how to get from point A to point B and point B were always the points that he was making. So, yeah, I basically had to come up with this story with the hardest thing I ever did. Uh, <laughs> well, put it this way, when I was writing and drawing my own material before I became a professional, well, that was easy because I got to draw and write whatever the heck I wanted. I yeah. didn't have to follow up. I mean, you know, it's odd that there was another, there was a professional out there who basically worked the way I worked as a kid or as a young man, young teenager. You know, I, I thought would come to my head, and so I'd start drawing, and I'd start dialoguing, and then I'd let it go for a little bit. Then I'd think about it some more. Then I'd add more to it, and I'd get all the way to the end of the story. I mean, basically, not even an outline or anything, just whatever came to mind and how I thought it would be cool for this storyline to evolve, I, that's how I did it. Now, another guy, a professional who I found out was, you know, who did that, worked the same way, was Russ Manning with the Tarzan strip. Okay. I couldn't believe it that he actually would basically wing it, and as it was coming to him, he would draw it. I'm thinking, wow, that's pretty wild. This guy's a professional, and he was that good that he would have these stories in his head and be able to come up with a beginning, a middle, and an end and make the whole darn thing work. You know, mm. so that's that's a gift in itself. And I guess if you work that enough, maybe you get faster at it. But as I said, this was a difficult undertaking for me. So at any rate, to my knowledge, I mean, of course, I drew the entire story, turned it in, you know. On a cursory look, they'll say, oh, wow, yeah, this, this, this looks good, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there, was a nice, there was a nice couple of pages in there where, you know, the Phantom was, you know, had these sort of like some kind of a little helicopter thing, backpack, where he was, you know, coming down into the fray, um, into, you know, some of these minions of Ming the Merciless, this ice guy, I forget his name, and some of these other things. Carax. Yeah, that's right. Wow, you know all this stuff. Okay, cool. Um, so at any rate, he, he, he sort of like drops himself into the fray. And then, of course, he has that cool panel where he's, you know, getting his fists out and his arms out, his head's back, and he's calling upon the power of the Ten Tigers. <laughs> you know, so, you know, now he's got the power of the Ten Tigers and he knocks this guy's this guy's head right off his body. Okay, so you've got these couple of pages of phantom action in there. And 
But one of the things that I didn't like about drawing the Phantom and the Defenders, although I couldn't be picky and choosy because I still felt like I was doing the Phantom, was that he didn't have the striped trunks. Okay? Yeah. yeah. And uh, I found out the reason for that was that they said that they would be too hard to, to pull off an animation. Yes. The car- yeah. And then because it was a kid's cartoon, they didn't want him to have guns. So mm. that's why the power well, of the He's not a superhero, so what else does he have? <laughs> that narrows it down. He has the power well, of ten ta- got, tigers. Well, once, yeah, once you've got the power <laughs> of ten tigers, you're a superhero. Well, you know what? <laughs> well, case in point, look at Batman. Batman is considered to be a superhero uh, because what he, some of his, I guess his deeds are heroic and they're, let's say, more than the average person can do. So that makes him more of a quote unquote superhero. And, you know, he's just a human guy, you know, basically, you know, very, very fit, muscular, you know, very smart, has all the tech at his command, you know, the whole nine yards. But, you know, in a way, he's like the Phantom. You know, he's just, yeah. a, just a regular guy. A bullet can kill him, you know? Mm. Um, I think well, it's safe to say that Batman is just the Phantom. Oh. <laughs> this, is a, this is a Phantom Urban, podcast, so we can't say Urban that. Urban with a lot more gadgets. <laughs> uh, but at any rate, yeah, a lot more gadgets. Yeah, instead of a, uh, you know, I mean, the Phantom does not have a Phantom mobile that runs around. <laughs> yeah, it's called Hero. He's got a skull copter and he's got a skull copter. He's got the skull. Oh, the skull copter was kind of cool. I liked drawing that thing. That was kind of. <laughs> uh, but you know, again, with the Defenders of the Earth, everybody's got kids. You know, and then yeah. you got the little, mm. and then you got the well, the Phantom's daughter had the uh, black, the black leopard, which was kind of cool. But then yeah. they also had this funky little purple alien thingy that was jumping around. Oh, like Zaffy. What was his name? Zafi. Oh yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Take his word for it. Yeah, you have to have that. That's almost like when I was a little kid. And uh, are you guys familiar with Johnny Quest? Uh yes. yeah. Okay, Johnny Quest was a Hanna Barbera cartoon that was very yeah. realistically drawn for the time, uh, designed by Alex Toth, uh, many, many, many years ago, probably. Oh, maybe in the middle 60s, 1960s. And uh, uh, boy, of course, they had to have this little pug dog named Bandit that did nothing yes. but annoyingly bark through every <laughs> cartoon. You know, Bandit would see something and you hear, wah, 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 wah. Like, shut up, Bandit. Come on, cut it out. <laughs> you know, and then, of course, because Bandit would bark, he, he would always give away their location to the bad guys because the guy would turn and see Johnny Quest and Haji lurking in the background, but now they can be pursued by the bad guys because Bandit just couldn't keep his mouth shut. Well, (laughs) but at any rate, um, so we're going back to the Defenders. So I turned that story in. I was assuming that the first six, I was under the impression the first six pages were dialogued with word and lettered and inked by Fred Fredericks. And so as time went on and I was working on Web of Spider-Man, I would occasionally see this editor named Michael Higgins and say, hey, Mike, do do you have those first six pages that Fred Inc., you know, and he goes, I, you know, he says, yeah, I got them someplace in the storage cabinet, locker, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I'm not sure if it if I, I can't remember now if I even got to write that stuff. Said, well, 
I wouldn't mind having, you know, some of that artwork back. He goes, yeah, okay, we'll get to it. Now, mind you, I mean, I left Marvel back in 1996, and we were in, uh, you know, we are, we're here in Florida already. And I'm trying to remember if it was around the end of the the end of the 20th century, around the year 2000 or something like that, all of a sudden I get this FedEx box. It says Marvel Comics. And I go, huh, what are they sending me? And I open it up, and there was a an Amazing Spider-Man page in there from the first Amazing Spider-Man fill-in I did, one page. Then there was another page from uh, another Spider-Man book that I did that was based on the animated series for some reason or other. That page was in that closet. And then the entire 25 pages of that fifth Defenders of the Earth story completely inked. Oh, wow. <laughs> Holy mackerel. Fred inked this whole thing. And but it was never the dialogue was never put down. So the only thing that's left of it is the I think you can still see some of my notes in the margins, because I guess when. You know, when you finish inking something, usually you the anchor does the erasing. So I yeah. guess I have a heavy enough hand with my pencil where I, you could probably look at the impressions that the pencil left on the pages and still be able to read that. You know, so, yeah, so as I said, I've got all 25 pages, you know, sitting around over here. Um, a few people have seen it, but I've never, I've never scanned all 25 and, you know, decided to post it on Facebook. Um, I possibly could at some point, and then everybody could, you know, get a look and enjoy it. Um, not one I, of those. Yeah. Not something that I'd want to break up if I was to sell the artwork. Well, again, with the defenders of the artwork working with Fred, I've got issue number one, I've got issue number three, and I have issue number five and all the covers. So, oh, wow. yeah, so individual pages never were sold from my end, although I guess with Fred getting those issue number two and four, I've seen a couple of those, a couple of pages from those two books, um, either on eBay or somebody would write to me and say, hey, I just bought a, um, you know, Defender of the Earth page that you drew with Ink by Fred Fredericks, and I'm thinking, well, didn't get it from me, and uh, <laughs> so, you know, they'd show me the page, and they were excited that they got it, and, you know, Maybe had one panel on there with all the heroes on it or something like that. But, uh, yeah, some of that stuff is out there. Well, 22 pages on the ass. So 44 pages, unless, you know, some pages didn't sell. But there's some pages floating around out there with some. Mm. Okay. Mm. The, the, pieces are, the pieces I remember when uh, I was lucky enough to have a, a, a quick look at it when you're in, um, in Australia was the, the fight scenes. Um, that, that were the things that stood out to me was, and I, from memory, there was a huge splash page as well with all of them in in there. Is, is my memory failed uh, me? Or? The, the splat, the first page of number five is sort of a um, a little below the waist, like a thigh shot close up of Ming, and he's sort of you know curling his fingers and his fists because he's obviously complaining or spewing some irate gibberish about how he wants to kill Flash Gordon. I would assume that that's probably what that was. And then the uh, the, the next page in there um, is more stuff on, you know, with Ming. They, I think they, I'm trying to remember, uh, let's see, 
I don't necessarily, I don't really remember too much. I know there was, oh, there was a splash page in there. Page six was a full page panel with these ugly creatures coming out of some kind of a time war. That, yeah. I, it was, that was either page five or six because the next page, they were on the streets of the city and they were knocking over cars and tossing people around and wreaking havoc and all this stuff. And of course, then, you know, you got to get the, the, the heroes are going yeah. to, you know, enter the fray. I think Flash Gordon at that point in time was still somehow in outer space or all the heroes were in outer space except for the kids. They were at the mountain retreat over there holding down the fort and they catch wind of this alien invasion or whatever and then they go jumping into the Defenders of the Earth you know, mobile or whatever you want to call that thing and some kind of a uh, like a trailer van or whatever, and they just went yeah. into the city. They're getting blasted, and yeah, it was a fun thing to do, I'll tell you that. So I'm not um, – Alex, my daughter, my oldest daughter, who is four and a half, she actually watches Defenders of the Earth now. Like, that's oh, one that's of her favorite cool. cartoons. Wow. Um, yeah, I I think I've got all all the uh, all the episodes that they ever made on some sort of a two DVD set or something like that. Yeah, yeah, no, she she fun. loves it. She does she does the like she almost knows the whole intro song and she does all the actions for it and um, her favorite uh, the Phantom Jetta and then Mandrake and then Zuffy. She likes Zuffy as well. Of course. <laughs> if, they made, if they made a stuffed animal of that, you know, you'd have to get that for her. Yeah. Um, so did you know that there has been some pages of a episode six that has come um, of you Defenders know of the Somebody, Earth? I think you turned me on to that a couple of months ago. And I think you even showed me a, I mean, a cover, I think, that was drawn, penciled by James Fry. And I don't know. Yes. And, I, and, and I, there was, was a couple of interior pages as well. That was completely that was com- news to me. I never know. I never knew they actually even went ahead to do a number a sixth issue. Um, put it this way. If I was still available, I'm sure they would have approached me to do a sixth issue. But the thing is, is that maybe they wouldn't have, because at the time that I was doing issue number five, <coughs> maybe. They hadn't gotten word yet, obviously, that the book was going to be canceled. Mm-hmm. And I was taking so long and doing the plotting while I and the drawing of it. They figured, well, they maybe they didn't want to lose, you know, being on schedule. So they, yeah. you know, they gave issue number six to somebody else so that as soon as I turned in five, they could be putting that into production while they're also putting number six into production so that they wasn't wouldn't miss you know, a date at the printers. Um, yeah. That was, that was always very costly. If you, at the time, there was one place in the United States, Sparta, Illinois, and they would be uh, printing the comic books for Marvel, DC, and anybody else that wanted to come in there. And you had to book a certain amount of time for each, um, well, you had to book the hours uh, and make appointments and reservations so that you can get your books done. If you missed that reservation appointment, they would charge you one and a half times as much or maybe even <laughs> twice as much. Mm. So, yeah, they couldn't afford to do that. 
but yeah. so yeah, I, I was surprised that uh, you know why did, now is that is that cover and the interior pages you know in the hands of some collector out there? I I've seen the cover. The cover went yeah. on eBay. That's when I told you about it. But mm-hmm. and then I've seen some interior panels like. Maybe one or two pages, but I don't know if it's complete. Don't know if the dialogue was done or, or, or anything like that. I, I don't know. Okay. Um, um, one of the things that we do do is we do a, a, a phantom preservation project where we find unique things like this and preserve it and kind of, you know, do like a depository. So I think we've got some of that stuff on there um, and, and stuff like that. And, um, yeah, it, it one, we might have to uh, have a bit of a chat about how we can get uh, the episode five on there as well, because well, I reckon there'll what? be a lot of fans you know out what? there that would love to see it. Um, I could, let's see, I could make you an offer in the sense that uh, since, as you're saying, you're doing some sort of a phantom archive thing. Um, we 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 touched upon the um, the three the three blank covers that you sent me for you know to do sketches on. And yeah. um, I could make um, I could make a copy physical physical copies by just taking my uh, Phantom story uh, to you know um, on my copy machine and making you know reduced copies at least eight and a half by eleven let's say the uh, A4 size or something like that. Yeah, send, wow, that will be amazing. I could send that along with the um, with the blind covers when I send you a package. Yeah, that that will be that will be great, and we'll um put it we'll scan that in and um put it on the Phantom Preservation Project for um for people to be able to treasure and look at. So that would be amazing. Yeah, the only I would imagine the only thing you'd have to probably do is, you know, because uh, I don't have it on there, but I I guess the back of every page would usually have a, you know, like a trademark copyright yeah. know, Marvel makes copyright king features that kind of thing. As long as you give them credit. I yeah. don't think you have to go ahead and, uh, or I wouldn't have to go ahead and get in touch with them for any kind of, you know, legal approval. Hey, listen, you know, these guys, they just want to do this archival thing. It's not going to be out there making money for them or anything no. like that. No. It's just a historical, it's just a historical record of, of something that was produced uh, concerning the Phantom, you know. So. Yes, yes. Yeah, exactly. So we yeah, appreciate that. I would have no problems about doing that for you. That wouldn't be a problem. Awesome. Cool. Oh, that'd be awesome. <laughs> so you came to Australia. Uh, what was that like? Wow. Longest trip I ever took in my life. Is <laughs> <laughs> it just to get here in the first place? <laughs> oh, my gosh. I mean, from, from where I live here in Florida, it was just one hour to Atlanta, and then we stopped over there for a few hours, and then we had a flight from there to Los Angeles, which was about five and a half hours. Then we had a four-hour stopover, and we didn't leave for Australia until about midnight hour uh, in LA time, which was, uh, and then we then it was 15 hours in the air over the Atlantic, um, no, the Pacific. I'm sorry to get to Australia, and we landed in Sydney at 7 a.m. Uh, we flew on. We left on Wednesday. We got to Sydney at 7 a.m. on Friday. It was weird. <laughs> <laughs> Thankfully, I was able to, in those 15 hours. I don't sleep very well on planes, and you know, you're not flying first class. It's just way too expensive. So you do the best you can. And um, but 
I don't, you know, I don't necessarily take any type of uh, sleeping, you know, aids or drugs or anything like that. And I certainly wasn't going to drink any alcohol to, <laughs> to give me a buzz so I can pass out on the plane. But I managed to get a couple of Valiums in me um, just to relax me. And I did fall asleep for about five hours. So then when I woke up, I was I was wide awake and movies to be watched. And uh, <laughs> I, passed, I don't remember exactly what I watched, but I passed the time that way. I think I watched about another I must have watched at least three movies, then tried to read a book, and then fell asleep again, a little nap here and there. My wife was miserable. She couldn't sleep. And she, you know, and so that made, I was concerned for her because, you know, being up being up for that long, lengthy period of time. But, you know, we managed, when we got to Richard Fry's house, um, we managed to, you know, take a little nap uh, because they had a welcoming party for us that evening at their place, and we got to meet a lot of the friends of the Phantom that were coming to that dinner on Saturday night. Yeah. And um, so, I mean, hey, uh, you know, everybody was just, just, I just met so many really, really nice people. Um, all you guys that I'm talking to and uh, some of the other Phantom fans. And then I was quite surprised that um, how many fans of Spider-Man I had in Australia also. Uh, that was more of a surprise than the Phantom fans I had. Although it was kind of neat when you'd have these teenagers, these, um, you know, these these girls that were maybe 15 or 16 years old and coming up there with their sisters and their brothers and, you know, all giggly and stuff. And they're going, oh, uh, you know, we'd like to, uh, you know, buy a, you know, something uh, of the Phantom. And my wife was there and she would always go, OK, prints are $20 each, three for $50. And uh, I'd say, well. You got three people here. You want to get three prints of the Phantom? Oh, yeah, yeah. I said, well, how do you guys know the Phantom? Do you read through? And I said, no, no, no. My grandfather, he was a big fan since he was a little boy. <laughs> and, he, and he used to read the newspaper strips to us and the Fru comics and all this stuff. And I'd say, really? Wow, that is so cool. So I said, yeah, let's. Well, how about if I sign these prints off to Granddad? Oh, that's so today. great. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, people I like that. Like, it was can just. We actually go? <laughs> Sorry, Alex. That's just uh, no, one of the joys no, of uh, with children. <laughs> do you know who I'm talking to at the moment? Someone who actually draws comics. <laughs> do you want to talk to him? Do you want to say hello to Alex? Yeah, hello, I'll, I'll, I'll put the headset on. <laughs> this is Alex. Right? Hello. This, Alex, this is my son, um, Jeremy. Do you want to say hello? Hi, to Jeremy. How are you? Good. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah, yeah. Hey, listen. Um, is it? Do you watch the? Um, do you watch the Defenders of the Earth cartoon, or is that your sister? Oh, that's that's my different that's family. my kid. Different family. <laughs> oh, different family. Oh, I'm sorry. So, Jeremy, do you like the Phantom? Yeah. Good, good, because I know your father loves the Phantom. So, if you said you didn't like the Phantom, he'd be, you know, he'd be hurt. <laughs> you don't want your dad to cry, do you? <laughs> no you don't give your dad a big hug because he's a really good guy <laughs> hey, Jer hey Jeremy you still there yes okay so what are you doing this afternoon are you planning at all hey what's the question <laughs> can I have the headset back 
What do they say? Never, never work with kids or animals. <laughs> yeah, I've got the headset back. Oh, okay. Well, he's, he sounded like a fine young man. He is a fine young man. He was asking me if we can go to the comic shop. Oh, <laughs> it's five, it's five thirty in the afternoon. It's not happening. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. It's okay, comic shop. It's shut, mate. Oh, comic shop. I, yeah. But even though he knows it's shut. Hey? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's shut over at his place too. It's the middle of the night where he is. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Comic it's book shop. Um, is it shut? Um, yet? Yes. Is it shut in our country? Yes. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, there we go. Jeremy well, makes actually, appearance. This, this, this might actually be a neat little segue, Alex, because uh, obviously Jeremy's at... Uh, how old is he, Stephen? Uh, he is five. He's in prep yeah. school. And that's it. And that's pretty much the age that you said, Alex, that you started getting into the fandom. You've talked. We've talked a lot about the process of art and all the rest of it, but uh, one thing that's really stood out is how much you absolutely <laughs> love the Phantom as a character, and that started at that early age when you were cutting out strips from the newspaper and collecting them. Um, what I what I've picked up is that you you obviously enjoy Lee Fork stories and that sort of thing. But can I ask you what is it about the Phantom as a character? Why this character that you've sort of hitched your wagon to that you really love so much and you've done so much work for? What is it about about the Phantom that you love? Well, I'd say before I got to really enjoy the Phantom, I was a huge Tarzan fan. And the fact that both of them are in the jungle and they deal with jungle animals, um, to this day, I'm still, you know, enamored by going to a zoo and just seeing whatever animals they have there uh, in their whatever environment they could actually try to duplicate. Um, And, you know, going to aquariums, uh, you know, natural wildlife, all these great TV shows that they have, you know, these uh, Planet Earth shows and stuff like that. We're dealing with animals and wildlife. I've always been fascinated by that. And I think the jungle is such an intriguing backdrop where um, the fact that you have the phantom, you know, and aside from the unrealistic part of the phantom being dressed in a purple <laughs> in the middle of a 120 degree jungle you know with 100 percent humidity and he never sweats either okay i mean he doesn't grow beard he doesn't sweat he doesn't have any armpit stains when he picks his arms up and down. i've never thought um, about the armpit stains yeah hey, I, thought about, I just thought about that right now <laughs> so the next Next story that we draw from you when he punches someone. Are we going to see an armpit snake? <laughs> well, I'll put it this way. I won't draw it, but I'll make a suggestion to the colorist to go a little deeper in purple <laughs> uh, or blue when his arm is up in the air. Okay. Um, no, I think it's just the I think it's the jungle environment. I, I just love that whole jungle environment. I love the skull cave. You know, drawing that drawing that organic material. Just uh, I mean, I love it. Uh, it's so mm. much. It, it's easier, mind you, to do that with all the intricacies and all the different plant life that you have there, the jungle life. And I've gotten to do. I've gotten to draw a lot more animals. I probably would hardly ever draw animals if it wasn't for the Phantom. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. You know, drawing. I mean, 
learning how to draw horses, uh, learning how to draw devil, um, and, you know, just some background animals here and there that you want to throw in. Um, yeah, I, I just find that whole, the whole thing fascinating in that sense, just to draw. When I draw it in black and white, he's not wearing a purple costume with blue and black striped trunks. And yeah. as you know, it shouldn't have been purple in the first place, right? You know, because he was supposed <laughs> yeah. to be the, the gray ghost. And, um, you know, the, the fact what's, that... What's interesting is the first color the Phantom has ever appeared in, well, one yeah. of the first was actually red. And then there's this other one, which was the Brazilian comic, which was like the third or fourth comic that's ever produced. He was actually wearing like little... He actually didn't have a shirt on. He just had like a... A, uh, like a Mexican wrestler's hat on, and then the, like the the, the torso was uh, skin color. So, wow. uh, yeah. Oh, that's really weird. I mean, I think <laughs> that, you know, I do remember that you know Lee Falk had made reference to the Gray Ghost, and yeah, they tried yeah. to they tried to duplicate Gray, uh, but they couldn't do it. So rather than use, you know, all the colors we used to be made up of dot patterns. So yeah. rather than use black dot patterns, which they felt were going to, you know, get saturated and get all blotchy and turn black and whatever. So they couldn't use that. So just like in the, the DC comics that I remember reading as a kid when Batman appeared on the inside of the comic book on the newsprint, the, the supposed gray of his costume was made up of red and blue dots. Space in a particular way so that it looked like it was light purple, but because they would keep referring it to it as, as blue and gray, that's how they portrayed gray. And it actually, in a way, worked. It just didn't look enough. It didn't look purplish enough. But I'm sure that if they wanted to, you know, increase the dot pattern, then it would probably turn into more purple. Um, and But on the covers, because they had the slick paper... They were able to do Batman in the black dots because they wouldn't saturate on the slick paper. So yeah. you'd see Batman in gray on the cover, and then you almost somehow, it was almost like the power of suggestion because he's gray on the cover. Mm. You're assuming that he's gray on the inside, even though it's closer to a light purple than it is a gray. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So, Stephen, i got a question for you, my friend. Um, we've had we've had a bit of a joke about um, you having a man crush with Alex, and I think it's rather obvious why everyone why you do because you know he's just spent the last two and three quarter hours saying how good he is. It's, it's yeah. awesome. <laughs> <laughs> what you know? So Stephen, what what makes Alex stand out for you uh, from a lot of the other artists that we've seen? Um, well, it was when when Alex was talking about that, um, I think it was a two-parter, and, and he was able to um, say that you know he could go to town with these great big panels, and it's nice and clear. That's um, when I think about Alex's work. I think it's big, it's clear, um, and the art really just it pops off the page for me. Um, but yeah, the, 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 yeah, it's it's well, big. thank you. It, it's yeah, it's big, it's clear, and it pops. That's that's. And I, and I like your POV, your point of views as well that you do. Oh, I, I appreciate that. And, you know, the thing is, is that before I had the opportunity to do that, 
in that particular two-parter because I just had, I just had, you know, four, a 44 pages to take a 32-page story. Um, I tried to be as dynamic as I possibly could, even in the 32-page stories that I was given prior to that, um, where, you know, if I had the opportunity for, you know, to express some more dynamics, I would try my best in order to do that. Um, I think in, well, for example, the second, the second Phantom story I did for Egmont, the Phantom Museum, there were yeah. some nice, ac- there were some nice action shots that I can recall drawing in there, specifically when, um, I guess early on enough, well, even in the first opening scene, you had a, you know, you had a darkened museum and there was a five panel sequence on the bottom, which, you know, just kind of expressed that particular sequence of time where the, you know, the guard all of a sudden realizes there's somebody behind him and then he gets knocked out by the, or maybe even gets killed by the spear from that, the guy in the mask. Um, then when the Phantom first confronts that guy inside the apartment. Um, and... Goodness <laughs> me. <laughs> all right. They were screaming because the Phantom was going to get beaten, stuck, you know, stuck in the shoulder with a spear by this bad guy with a super with a scary mask. But I mean, I had some I had some really I thought I uh, had some really good action moments even in that story even though it was 32 pages, I was able to, you know, get a bigger panel in there whenever I could and then the small use the smaller panels just to move the story along. Um, so it's and that's a trick to that and it's so much so that even in those seven and eight panel pages that I had I would still try to maintain the dynamics. I can remember using Google Translate because I wanted to read what some of these Swedish fans were saying about me on their posts on Facebook. And I remember this one guy saying, um, I don't necessarily like the artwork because Alex's style does not fit the Phantom. It's too much like Marvel. So I'm thinking, oh, well, thank you very much. It's that just goes to show you um, what it is about the Phantom and how the stories have been told for so many years that when you have, um, as I said before, the so-called newspaper strip style of storytelling, which seems to be very, uh, I call it quiet, okay, lacking dynamics, but it still tells the story very clearly enough um, to move the dialogue along. And as long as you see your hero in action, doing whatever he does, then those fans are appeased. But then when you come in, like when I came in, and even let's say when Dick Giordano came in and um, we you know, stylistically changed that particular storytelling formula by using our own particular sense of dynamics to tell the story. Um, well, that's a big change for people who are yeah. used to one thing, you know? Yeah. Um, and so I can appreciate what he's saying because he's basically saying to me, well, I've read the Phantom for probably about 20 years of my life. And, you know, I've seen this, regardless of who the artist was, they've all pretty much followed a particular style yeah. in telling a story. And now you come along and you're upsetting the entire thing. What the hell is wrong with you? So, yeah. um, you nah, know, good so on you for doing it. Yeah, well, <laughs> um, another, it was kind of like, um, do you remember, was it the 80s when all the English um, 
artists came to do work for like DC and Marvel. I think they called it the English Invasion. It was you mean like a, when Brian Boland came in and guys like that? Yeah, yeah, and like it was a huge. It was almost like a, a wake up call or a shake up, and it was a bit like that when when you know you Paul Ryan um, Dick. Uh, Dick Oriander, um, Bob McLeod, and then Sel Valuto later on and stuff. It's almost it was almost like the American invasion, um, which yeah. maybe maybe is not the right type of word to uh, to put American and the word invasion in the same sentence. But um, but that's what it was kind of like. He's, he's, well, you yeah, know what we had we up. had that. Yeah, you know, as you said, there was a shake up with uh, the English guys coming over to you know, America and uh, working on the books, you know, the guys like John Bolton and Brian Boland and, uh, you know, a few other gentlemen and uh, Barry Smith. And, uh, you know, then we all in the seventies, um, when I was, I got into comics in 1977, but prior to that, let's say five years earlier, or maybe even maybe six, uh, there was a Phil, if you want to call it a Filipino invasion yeah. where you had, you know, they, I mean, Joe Orlando, and Paul Levitz and I think one other higher up over there at DC, they went to the Philippines and they met with a whole bunch of these Filipino guys like Tony mm. Zanuga and um, uh, Alfredo Alcala and um, trying to think who else, Nestor Redondo. And there were just tons of these guys that were unbelievable draftsmen. And, you know, because they I remember talking to Alfredo Alcala. And, you know, he, if you're familiar with his style, he has a very type of a, you know, like a very linear etching type of style. You know, when he renders clouds, they have a lot of lines in them. And, you know, in order to denote form, he'll use a lot of, you know, cross hatching and these lines almost look like the like an etching from the early 1920s where somebody might say, oh, gosh. And the people learn how to draw that way because. They saw all these lines, parallel lines and parallel curved lines and stuff, not realizing that that came from a printer's plate. And so oh, you had okay. people, you had people emulating that as you know some of these guys did. And Alfredo, his style looks so detailed and so you know complex. I remember how many pages a day did you draw when you were in the Philippines? He says, well, no, not the Philippines. I just said in general. He goes. Well, when I work on my own, when I do my own work, I can pencil and ink three pages a day. And when wow. I work on John, when I work on John Buscema finishing up his layouts on Conan, I can do five pages a day. So then wow. my next question was, well, how long is your day? <laughs> you know, <laughs> because, you know, if even if you work on somebody's, if you finish John Buscema's art, and you can do five pages. If you're a speed demon, you do it in two. And if you're a speed, two hours. And if you're a speed demon, you're still doing it in three hours. So Mm. considering you've got 24 hours in a day, if you can do five pages in 15 hours, still eat, sleep, and go to the bathroom, well, then I guess you get it done. But they, they paid so little in the Philippines that they had to do that quantity of work. Yeah. Just in order to make a living. So then when they come to America and, you know, again, I don't know what I can't remember what the rates were at that time. But if they were paying whatever they started them with was probably twice or three times as much as they were getting in the Philippines. Mm. So. 
Yeah. So, I mean, but, but, you know, one of my favorite artists is Jose Luis Garcia Lopez from Argentina. I mean, that guy's amazing. I'd love to, one of these days when I see him at a convention, I'm going to ask him to do me a phantom sketch. And if he puts the eyes in, I'm going to freaking erase him. That's (laughs) (laughs) no, although I have to say, I would trust him not to because it's only on some extreme close-up where he might show the Batman's eyes if he's looking off to the side or something like that because you can't do that with the, you know, with the blank eyes. If you're mm. if you're kind of looking straight ahead but you want to look off to the side, how do we do that? You know, so that's yeah. why that one panel in the Phantom Number One from Gold Key in 1962 or whenever it was where the Phantom looked surprised towards the back end of the story, and all of a sudden I saw him with eyeballs, and I said, the Phantom's got eyeballs. Holy mackerel, that's weird. Um, and I think, he, I think, if I'm not mistaken, he did that once in the Sundays also when he was doing it in that episode with Samaris or Samaris or whatever her name yep. is. Yep, yeah, that and was, he did yeah. it in there, then he did it again in that first issue of the Phantom, but I don't think he ever did it again after that, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> Yeah, he, um, yeah. <laughs> it's funny because the first time I drew the Phantom, uh, just for the heck of it, um, I trying to remember there was somebody in Australia named Daniel Best. Yes. And Daniel oh, yeah. had gotten I I drew this Phantom uh, like like almost like a a a, a a a commission piece without it being a commission. I would just make these drawings and stick them on eBay and sell them and. When I look back at that first particular drawing, I mean, I had the so-called ear bumps that Bill Lignanti made famous. Yeah. And so, you know, when people were seeing this, they go, yeah, it's a pretty good looking phantom, but he's got those Lignanti ear bumps in there. I'm going, what? What's he talking about? (laughs) I I, I didn't get it, you know, but then when I looked at it, I said, oh, yeah. And then you look at Cy Barry's phantoms and I'm going, yeah, he draws them kind of like just he's got this tiny head. But he's got no ear bumps. Um, but he's got super wide shoulders. But at the same time, you know, you looked at the Phantom the way Cy did it, or whoever his assistants were who did the penciling. Um, George Olsen drew a very wide, broad-shouldered Phantom. But, you know, the thing is, with the Phantom, you never, they never really got in there and did too much of the so-called anatomy, where, you know, you didn't see the Phantom with a six-pack and every muscle on his back completely uh, defined, although I have to admit, I get in there, you know, maybe a little bit more than I should, but I try not to. It's just hard. It's just hard to draw a guy in a, you know, a tight fitting costume or uniform, whatever you want to call it, and not give him some particular definition only because you're working in two dimensions. Um, Now, there's another artist uh, who was an old artist who was a famous guy back in the I'm going to say the 50s and 60s. His name was Reed Crandall. I don't know if you're familiar with Reed's work, but it was very, very detailed, very linear. As a matter of fact, I remember when I first spoke to Jeff Weigel and I said, wow, your work reminds me of a cross between Murphy Anderson and Reed Crandall. And he says, oh, wow, thank you so much. I mean, those are two of my heroes, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, yeah, I mean... You know, when, you know, Jeff is such a, I think he's such a fantastic artist in terms of the, you know, the research that he does 
for you know anything that he draws regarding the phantom weather, any kind of environment. That scene that again took way the heck too long when I think it was the phantom was with that bald headed guy in what the bowels of Bumby prison or something like that. And they were in those catacombs in the sewers. Oh, that took forever. It took forever, <laughs> but it was it was it was gliriously illustrated, though. Yes, it I was, mean, but it still took forever. <laughs> oh yeah, they took a long time to get out of that tunnel, right? But man, that was a long tunnel. It, yeah, it was a huge tunnel. Okay, I wish there there should have been some alligators in there or something, and spiders and creepy crawlers and whatnot, but. Just the way he designed that whole thing and laid it. I remember getting in touch with him and saying, did you have reference for those sewers? I mean, how did you do that? I mean, it's just incredible the amount of work that he puts into every panel, into every mm. page. That I hope that you're doing this on paper and not in the computer. And he says, well, you know, people <laughs> have been pressing me to do it on paper. And I said, oh, man. You are killing yourself. You're not giving enough yes. fans the ability to get original artwork from you because he started sell, now. Yeah, I said you could sell your pages in a heartbeat because everyone is just like too, too, too good for words. You know, like mm. I mean, I feel that strongly about it. When I first, again, I, uh, you know, as time went on over the last, I'd say, decade and a half. When um, when it was when they when when uh, what's his name Graham was leaving the Phantom Sundays, I was hoping to get a chance to do that and I didn't. Um, I, when the Phantom Dailies were out there, I didn't get that either. I was passed over on that with Paul Ryan. Um, and then when the Sundays were up, I tried out to do the Sundays and it went to Terry Beatty. Um, and then when Terry Beatty gave up the Phantom, um, I remember finding out um well way too late but i would see at the time i was still busy i was working for i was working on an eggmont story i was doing the newspaper strip even though i was just inking the dailies and penciling the sundays but i still figured you know what if i can get to do the phantom dailies that would be great and i got in touch <laughs> with the uh with the new editor and um you know he thanked me for sending in the samples but anybody said you know, how soon can you how could soon can you do this for me? Because, you know, the untimely passing of Paul Ryan left us with in a lurch. We need it done like by yesterday. And I said, Oh yeah. I'm sorry, I can't help you. I can help you in about two weeks or three yeah. weeks when I'm done with my deadline, but I can't do it now. And they needed somebody at that point, so the timing just wasn't right for me. Another to, sliding doors moment. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> Uh, it just happened that I couldn't get to do it, but um, hey, you know, and Mike Manley, Mike Manley is, geez, uh, he's a workhorse. You know, he does the he does the Phantom Daily strips, and he does everything on them, um, and you know, digitally, I guess, and whatever. He does. No, he the does them originally as well. Excuse me. He does them originally. Okay. By hand, yeah. Yeah, now he's doing, and he's been doing Judge Parker the Sundays. For the longest time, also penciling, inking, lettering. I don't know if he does coloring. And then he's coming up to ten years, yeah. And then he finds time to paint. He finds time to teach. And I asked him. I said, "You are you married? Do you have a girlfriend?" He goes, "Neither." <laughs> I said, "Well, there you go. I guess you fill your time up with your work." And <laughs> yeah. you know what, that's what. That's. Have you guys ever uh, interviewed him? Yeah, we've interviewed yeah, we have, both Mike oh, okay. and Jeff. 
uh, when we were interviewing Mike, he was actually drawing. I think he he was doing a, a Phantom Daily while we were talking with him, and uh, and wow. then we've done Jeff, and Jeff's coming to Australia this year as well. Oh, I know that's fantastic. That's great. Um, yeah, I remember when I had gone to Australia. I think the following year was it. I think I came there in thirteen, and I think in fourteen was when Paul Ryan showed up. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I had recommended Paul Ryan to Richard Fry, and then uh, spoke to Paul and said, "Hey, if you have any questions, if you if I can help you in any way, let me know." And so. You know, we got to be, you know, I guess closer friends after that because he really appreciated, you know, whatever information I could give him. Um, and uh, he just said he had a fabulous time down there. And mm. It was very rewarding emotionally, very rewarding financially. So, you know, he had absolutely no complaints. <clears throat> but, you know, it was just, a, you know, when I think that, again, I'm six, I'm going to be 67 and Oh, none of us really knows what hand we're going to be dealt when we go to sleep at night, whether or not we wake up in the morning. We pray that we do. Mm. And for him to, you know, I mean, he had been. Mm. See, the thing is, is that thankfully, thankfully, I'm not under, I'm not under the stress that he was when he was taken care yeah. of. Okay. Uh, from what I understand afterwards, that he was completely stressed out. Um, you know, because, you know, parents' health was failing. He was spending time over there. He didn't live close by. So just the back and forth and then working on the newspaper strip and everything and whatever. And uh, ultimately, as good as he looked in terms of, you know, he looked like a he looked he was like he was in shape and he you know yeah. maintained his weight and he went to the, you know, he exercised. And yet all that did not prevent him from you know, having heart failure and passing away. And so mm. I count my blessings every every morning I wake up because, hey, you just don't know. And, um, you know, well, mm. we just hope for the best, you know. So, Alex, um, yeah, Alex, you've, you've talked about um, doing commissions and that sort of thing. Um, and I know that people will want to get in touch with you about um, whether it's sketch covers or, or whatever else. One thing I do want to ask you about is the Jamie Diaz jam piece that's come past. And I know that you inked a Cy Barry uh, pencils as that went past. And Jamie's very keen for us to ask you about that. And um, just your reflections on that. And, and I guess if anyone wants to get in touch with you about a commission piece, how do they go about it? Um, well, I could give you a, you know, they can get, they can get easily get in touch with me on Facebook. Okay. Um, people message me all the time um, from various countries. And, you know, ask me questions, ask me about commissions or, I mean, at the end of the podcast, I can give you my I, I'll call it my business email address, which perfect. Uh, again, now that I'm not doing the strip anymore, and even though I might have my regrets and my and I could lament the fact that I'm not doing it. There is also a, a sort of a liberating feeling of, gee, I don't have to work on these dailies this weekend uh, <laughs> the time. Because, you know, I've been I've been inking, I've been penciling Sundays since 1997 and every two weeks I'd get scripts and I would do two Sundays, you know, back to back and send them in. So every every two weeks I'd send in two Sundays and with the dailies, I'd have to ink a week of dailies for the last 15 years um, every week. OK, I would do yeah. it over the, a couple of nights because inking 
inking the dailies was fairly easy for me. Um, I mean, I'd be in my studio and my wife would come in, sit down in the extra chair, the extra, you know, nice chair that I had there for her. And I've got a TV in my studio and, you know, we'd have DVR programs, recorded programs that we like to watch. And so she'd sit here with me and, um, you know, we'd watch recorded shows, usually at least two. And then she has to go to bed. But at least I get to spend time with her. And uh, if I'm pressed for time with the work. And um, of course, by listening to TV, I'm not working at, let's say, 100 percent capacity, maybe at least about 75 percent. I don't get as much work done as if I had no television on. But the inking part goes quickly enough if when I'm doing layouts. Okay. That whoever just cheered me on for layouts. (laughs) Whenever I do layouts, I can't have television on. But I did finally, after all these years, discover the, the, well, the joy of having some easy listening music in the background. So not... Um, not that I'm, I mean, I like jazz, but again, if you've got dialogue and you've got singing it, uh, you know, it doesn't bode well for me to be able to try and see pictures as I'm reading a script. So we have a station here called, um, I think light jazz, and it's just really easy listening music. I put the volume on my television for on about maybe two or three. So it's just sort of background filler. When I come out of a focused moment and I'm thinking about something and I, as I come back to my own reality, if you will, that music will be there just to kind of help fill up the space. Because usually when I used to do layouts, I would, I would do it with nothing because I just needed that blank amount of, you know, environment for me to just be able to close my eyes and see pictures as I'm reading the words. Yeah. Mm. So, um, so just to, to touch on that jam piece again, it yeah. must have been something of a thrill to um, to actually do some inking for for the Cyberry pencils. Well, you know what, the way it came up, I mean, Jamie had been in touch with me on Facebook, asked me if I'd be interested in doing something on his jam piece, and I said, oh yeah, sure, no problem. So um, when he came and showed it to me, you know, there was a space there where he said, listen, you can do me a, can you do me a phantom over here, or you know. Maybe maybe you might want to ink Cyberry's pencils. I said, really? He said, sure, if you want to, go for it. I said, great. So I was inking, I mean, size pencils were there, and of course it looked like Cy, but at the same time, as much as I was respecting his pencils as they were on the page, I also, because I've been exposed to so much of his work, when I'm, you know, in, in my in my own drawings of the Phantom, I always have some Cyberry stuff just open on my drawing table just for inspiration. Okay. Yeah. Right. And, and there are certain there are certain ways, uh, certain rhythms that he has in inking certain things. And even though I didn't have a something something from him open on my on my table at the convention, um, I did have from I guess. Having the inspiration of Cy Barry for all those years, I was inking those pencils as if feeling as if he was inking them himself, because yeah. I was I had those, I guess those particular strokes and whatever is you know basically if you get into his mind and his thinking on on how and why he was putting those particular strokes down in that particular fashion to do the rendering, 
um, I was sort of giving that back to him so that mm. when I went up to visit him, uh, he was on the second floor of the convention and he had his own booth and uh, he was very happy to see me. I was happy to see him. I had only met him the first time in 2005 at one of those luncheons that the Friends of the Phantom used to run at Sardi's Restaurant in New yep. York City. And so I got to meet Cy then. So we're going back 14, well, 14, about, yeah, 13 and a half years. Um, so when Jamie showed him the jam piece and he said, well, look, Alex, Alex inked your, Alex inked your pencils and his eyes lit up and he goes, wow, that looks just like my inking. <laughs> I, was trying to, I was trying to do that. Uh, so I'm glad that you kind of saw that in there. So that was that made me feel really good. So well, I, think, yeah, I think Jamie's yeah, been really yeah. happy with it because um, not only has he got Alex Saviukin on the jam, but uh, it does look like Cy. He's got the Cy next to it. You can really see the comparison quite clearly. And, and it's just, I think, a really nice way of showing how the inker and the penciler can work together. Oh, definitely. I mean, you know, it's funny because... You know, Fred Fredericks is an artist, obviously, in his own right. And as I had mentioned, when he inked me, um, he was truer to my pencils on all characters and all environments <laughs> except for Mandrake. Okay, Mandrake <laughs> was his baby. And I had no qualms with that. That was fine. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah. And th but then when even when, let's say, George Olsen was doing the Sundays initially and Fred Fredericks was inking some of those Sundays, you know, you could see George Olsen. But mm -hmm. you, I mean, predominantly the Fred Fredericks ink line was there too. And so there was a huge difference between the way Fred inked George and the way Cy inked George. Yeah. Um, Cy had his own particular polished style. And, uh, you know, Fred had his, his own particular way of doing things. So, um, yeah, it's always interesting when you see artists being inked by other artists as to how those particular collaborations end up. Mm -hmm. So the good thing about that little story about Jamie's jam piece is uh, you might have missed out on the opportunity to assist Cy back in the uh, 60s or the 70s, but uh, you finally got your opportunity uh, back in uh, just recently. Yeah, and it's funny, though. The roles were reversed, right? <laughs> I, would have been I would have been doing pencil layouts for Cy, and he would have been inking it, and I probably would have that time been ooing and eyeing going, Man, look how cool that looks. Uh, <laughs> here, you know, I'm inking Cy, which is, you know, which was very, yeah. very. It was, it was an honor to do that for me, you know, and a privilege uh, that I would, that, you know, that Jamie, you know, he, he could have said, oh, no, 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 this is Cy's pencils. We, you know, we can't touch those. But he offered. <laughs> so I figured, yeah, what the heck, I'll go for it. Even though mm. I have my own pencil and ink piece on his jam, just the fact that I had the privilege of working on or with Cy, so to speak. Hey, that's uh, I, my stamp. My stamp is on that jam piece. Yes. Yeah, we've all, a lot of fans have been admiring that jam piece. Um, yeah. So, Alex, we, we must start beginning to wrap up. Uh, do you have any anything that you feel like you, you need to share with us or, or something like that before we um, let you have there's some sleep? Because there's it's, not a lot of... Not, not a lot we have not touched on, but yes. is there anything that you wish we'd asked? Oh, asked. Well, no, actually, it's um, uh, I just wanted to mention in terms of, you know, the, you know, the future in, for myself and what I'm doing with the Phantom. I had already mentioned that I'm, I'm doing a story for Fru, but I also let's see. Um, 
Well, you're probably aware that, oh, I say within the, the last year and a half, it seemed that Egmont was doing fewer and fewer new stories uh, because mm. sales, unfortunately, have been dwindling over there in Sweden also. Um, and also the, what, the Phantom Met in uh, Norway, you know, has mm. gone by the wayside, which is a shame after all those years. Um, but I think maybe things are getting better for the Phantom because I read someplace that, uh, you know, he, uh, Saul and uh, Klaus uh, Romerthy, maybe he's his assistant editor now, he said they had a discussion about new Phantom stories coming up. Yeah. Um, and I said, okay, well, that sounds cool. Now, he did say that he was going to write, he, Saul, uh, Mick was going to write a story for me to draw for Egmont, but he said he probably wouldn't get it to me until maybe the late spring or early summer. And I said, okay, that's cool. You know, whenever you get it is fine, as long as you get it to me. I just want yeah. to be able to, you know, draw another story for them. And I got one for Fru. And I'm sure that if I, you know, I don't know, uh, again, from year to year what's going on with new stories for Egmont, but I'm pretty sure that if I finish this Fru story and if I ask Glenn for another one, he'd probably oblige me and give me, mm. you know, the end of the year to do a second one. So there's yeah, always, yeah. you know, so I can always, I know that I can always kind of keep my hand in the Phantom um, since I have more time now to do it and I don't have to worry about when I would get into those crunch hours or weeks where I'm going, okay, let's see. I got to ink the Phantom over here and, uh, oh yeah, this Friday I got to do two Spider-Man Sundays, damn it. And then, uh, <laughs> You know, now on Sunday and Saturday and Sunday, I got to ink the dailies. Oh, man. You know, so, you know, it, like I said, there's a certain liberating feeling about not having to do that when you're in the middle of something else. Yeah. Um, and, and since we had touched upon two-parters earlier, I did want to make mention there was one two-parter, which I really had a fantastic time uh, that I really enjoyed doing, was the one where they went for that uh, – it had to do with that um, – that conglomerate energy company, and they ended up on that particular island where, you know, they were doing some archaeological things going on, and there was... Oh, uh, Raiders of the Lost City? Yes, yes. Oh, man, I had that was so much fun. That old guy was in the, you know, in the, you know, in the, in the caves over there. Uh, he was kind of like a little bit cuckoo, and, uh, you know, that was kind of a fun thing when he... Had uh, when he had that snake in the bag and he tossed it on the bad guy, and uh, you know, and then the second part was where the girl discovers that her long lost relative was the leader of this, you know, Inca tribe of, you know, down there, and he had the big helmet on, and then all that stuff that was going on. That was, yeah, that was that, that whole that whole story was a lot of fun. Really enjoyed that. And I got to draw pterodactyls and the Tyrannosaurus Rex. How cool is that? That is cool. It's only with the Phantom. <laughs> and with the Phantom, right. You know. So, um, yeah, we, we must thank you for your time. It's um, so, uh, it's 2 o'clock in the morning for you. Um, we must let you go and get some sleep, Alex. Uh, I'm we, wide we awake. Appreci- I'm probably I think um, Stephen has left us. He's had to go to look after his kids. His uh, wife has had to duck out. Um, uh-huh. So okay. that's why you can't hear the kids anymore. Um, 
Um, but no, Alex, we, we really appreciate you uh, spending, you know, a good three to three and a half hours with us. Mm. Um, yeah. so very gracious with your time. It was very, I mean, I was going to, I was going to basically sit and relax tonight anyway, but you know, this was actually more fun. It would have been, would have been nice if we could have been at a pub someplace, you know, sharing yes. a drink hey, and hey, yeah. thing, you know, <laughs> and we could have passed the time just as easily. And we would have said, my gosh, where did the time go? <laughs> That's pretty much how I feel. Where did the time go? Yeah, yeah no, exactly. I, I agree. I agree. It, I can't believe it is 2008. Um, but, I do have to say that um, let's see when is this podcast going to be going to come out to the public? Um, well, probably a, a couple of weeks, sort of middle of March, I'd reckon, um, middle middle to late March. We might we'll split it up go. into two as well, but we'll let you know. <laughs> it, or maybe three. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. But we'll well, we'll let you know. Want, we'll we'll be wanna, in touch. And I just want to make mention that also that. Um, I am in, I've been, not that I've signed anything, but I've agreed not to disclose any particular information, but I will tell you that I am doing some new work for Marvel Comics, um, which isn't taking up a lot of my time, but basically there'll be a comic book, uh, a new comic book coming out in the middle of uh, around April 10th here in America. I don't know mm. when you get those particular books over there in Australia, but they'll I'll be involved in five comic books in some sort of a mini series. Oh wow. Um, which is kinda neat for me over here because, you know, um maybe I'll be able to pick up some new fans that'll say, Hey mm. Alex, who's the new guy? Oh, he's, <laughs> he's, 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 he used to draw a web of Spider Man for seven and a half years. Can can we ask which character or, or, or which universe? Um, well, obviously it's the, um, I will say this, it's the, I can tell you, you can't, uh, this is off the record. Okay. Yep. This is not something for the podcast. It is. Okay. Yep. Yeah. It is in the spider verse. Cool. Awesome. Yeah. Hey, speaking of which, did you get to see that Spider-Verse car into the Spider-Verse uh, anime oh, yet? I really enjoyed that. It was, it was an excellent film. Oh, me too. Uh, made it doubly enjoyable for me because they finally, uh, well, not that he has, he showed up in the 1990s in the Spider-Man animated series, but they had Tombstone in, um, you know, he was, he, they never mentioned his, they never called him by name Tombstone, but he was the albino enforcer that was hanging around with the Kingpin. Ah, uh, right on. Yes. Yeah. And he was actually got, he actually got beaten up by Aunt May. Uh, yes. but Tombstone was the, one of the first uh, villains that I created, co-created at Marvel when I got there in 1986. Um, and Jerry Conway, the writer, just, you know, when you say co-create, they give you a description pretty much of what they want. And then it's up to me to put my own stamp on it. So I interpreted his his vision via his words and then threw a little bit of my own in there. And uh, that became Tombstone. So. Oh, wow. Yeah, so cool. by virtue of the fact that Tombstone was in that movie last year in, oh, November, Marvel Comics got in touch with me via email, and they invited me to the L.A. premiere, the Los Angeles premiere of Into the Spider-Verse, where they said um, there was, you know, Tombstone was in it. And the, the interesting backstory about that is that, oh, I say the year before, I was at a convention here in Florida, and Jerry Conway, uh, my old writer, was at the convention also. 
And I'd say about three fans over the course of one or two days came up to me and they said, hey, we heard that Tombstone is going to be in the next Spider-Man movie. And I said, really? Now, not knowing about this particular animated feature that I understand took four to five years to produce, um, when they said Tombstone was going to be in it, I thought, wow, you know, I already know that um, Michael Keaton is going to be the vulture again in the Spider-Man movie. And there was the possibility that they might have this other character called the Scorpion. And then I heard that Mysterio was going to be in it. And I'm going, wow, they're going to turn this into a real kind of like a storyline mess the way they did with Spider-Man 3, um, I think, from the, with Tobey Maguire. And then in the, you know, in the second Spider-Man, the ones that um, that were done with Andrew. What was his last was name? Was it Garfield? Andrew Garfield, right. Um, the second one, I mean, they made a mess out of the rhino by turning him into this weird-looking robot, and they gave him bookends in the movie, and Paul Giamatti was in. They getting embarrassed. And, um, you know, so... And then they had... I didn't like what they did with Electro, and then they got the Green Goblin or some kind of a wacko Green Goblin in there. And, again, too many villains spoiled the pot. So when I heard that... Mysterio and the Vulture were going to be in Spider-Man, the next Spider-Man movie. And then they said, hey, we hear Tombstone. And they're talking about putting Tombstone in. I'm thinking feature film with live action. So then when they told mm. me that Tombstone is in this animated, quote unquote, film or feature film, I said, oh, so that's what they meant when they were saying that Tombstone might be is rumored to be in the next Spider-Man movie. And they were talking about the Spider-Verse movie and not the live-action film. So uh, now I, they invited me to that premiere, but I could not go because my uh, niece was getting married that particular weekend, so I couldn't go. And I also got invited to a convention this year in Naples, Italy, but I can't go because my daughter is getting married. So... Oh. I hope that nobody else in my family is going to get married anytime soon. <laughs> lose, lose a trip, you know. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But at any rate, they, I, oh, one thing I forgot to mention was because we, when we're talking about that uh, gay pride phantom story, I actually got invited to come to the Stockholm Comic Con last year in September, oh. but they asked me basically in August if I'd be interested oh. in coming. I said, wow, really? I said, I have... It's conflicting with another convention that I have already, and I can't just go ahead and tell those promoters, guess what, I'm, I can't come to your convention. I've got a better offer. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, for personal reasons. And then they find out that I went to another convention. I mean, that kind of tarnishes your reputation right mm. away. You don't want to do that. So I had to yeah. keep up going to Stockholm, but of course I always say, hey, listen, if you want me to come next year, I'd love to come next year. But, you know, the year is still young. They might call me up in August again and say, hey, you want yeah. to come over next month? So who knows? Well, but, hopefully they listen to this podcast and um, then they'll go, oh, yeah, we'll have to ask him. I have to ask Alex again and you'll be able to get that trip to um, Stockholm because I'm sure there will be a lot of fans out there that would love to see you just as the Australian fans enjoyed seeing you all those yeah, years ago. As, as, much as, I, as much as that trip was very long um, to Sydney – and then we took the five-hour flight 
from Sydney to Perth. So that made it, um, which wasn't too bad. Um, but then when we left, uh, when the Supernova Con was over and we left that night, we had to fly from Perth to Sydney for five hours. Then there was a stopover for four hours. Then we had to fly from Sydney to L.A. for the 15 hours again. Uh, it ended up being a 31-hour return flight. <laughs> Might have been easier to go part, the other way. <laughs> here's the strange part, though. We left midnight, 12 a.m., Perth time on Sunday, and we arrived in Florida 31 hours later at about 7.30 p.m. <laughs> <laughs> so it took us three days to get there, but it only took us a little little bit over a day to get back. But the trip was long. <laughs> yeah, you yeah. figured that. But I'll tell you, I was kind of wiped out. I was jet-lagged for about a week after that. <laughs> but, you know, as I said before, I know that Australia, I mean, basically I, I was in Sydney and Perth, but... You know, Supernova runs those, uh, you know, I think they have a Gold Coast. They got Melbourne. They've got two other cities. And so I always think, gee, would be great to go to, you know, one of the other conventions where I'd be in a different city because, you Mm. know, there are some fans that you have in those cities that won't necessarily travel across the continent to come and see. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah if, well, you, if you can come up to the, the Gold Coast one, I'll be able to see you in Queensland as well. That'll be awesome. And there's a lot of Queensland fans who, who don't necessarily get down to Sydney um, yeah. and Melbourne up to Sydney and, and, and the like. So. Yeah, no, no, I'd lo- I wouldn't mind. I wouldn't, you know, I, like I said, to get invited to something like that, um, uh, I'm sure that I wouldn't say no if I had no conflicts of interest with hmm. any other conventions. Um, but and then I also understand that there's a big convention in New Zealand called OzCon. Is that true? Yeah, that's a, that sounds right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Is that? Have you guys gone to that show at all? No. Uh, no. You need a passport for that one. That's that's international oh. for us. Well, I got. A, <laughs> I have a passport already. How to get one to go? To <laughs> and it's good, it's good for ten years, so I don't want to have to renew it before I come back. You know. <laughs> but, Definitely. Anyway, gentlemen, listen. It's been a it's been a pleasure. Um, I really appreciate you know you. We, I mean, I know we've been talking about doing this for a number of months already, and I'm glad that mm. uh, you know we finally had the opportunity mm. to you know hook up with everybody involved uh, to have this you know to have this fun time. Um, Maybe more fun for me than for you because I get to talk and tell stories. And if you have oh, more we enjoy listening to them. We love listening to them. If you had more questions, I'm sure that I could find definitely find answers for them and keep you up for another three hours. <laughs> I, I have no doubt. <laughs> but but we we might have written a list of questions and and may never have asked them. But I think you've answered most of them across the course of the rest of your stories. So, uh, okay. Um... I was gonna say I was gonna say if you ever decided that you had more questions. And you wanted to do a part two, you know, we could always plan that sometime in the future. You know, so sounds good. Would, it sounds good to me. I think that uh, there's a very good chance of that. And I, then I can then I can definitely tell you about my other my other career in art uh, concerning uh, television advertising. Oh yeah, and, we didn't even touch upon that. No, and film and feature film um, storyboarding. So. Hmm. And you know, have more fancy stories to talk about as or, well. For, for, well, for another day. Note, did you ever see uh, or hear of a movie called The Reaping? It came out about 10 years ago. It starred Hilary Swank, was one of the first feature films for Idris Elba. 
Um, and also, I'm trying to think, there was one other prominent actor in it, and it was a horror film, okay? Uh, it was filmed here. Directed by in, Stephen Hopkins. Excuse me, Stephen Hopkins, the director, exactly. Um, Stephen Hopkins, huge comic book fan. And um, as it's, and yeah, quick, just quickly, and we can talk about this another time in, in more detail, but as it turned out, I got to storyboard an independent film here in Florida, and I got to meet this uh, choreographer, uh, cinematographer, whose name escapes me right now, Peter something or other, who's very close friends with Stephen Hopkins. So when, the sh when my tenure on this particular movie was coming to an end, you know, he, he started telling me about Stephen Hopkins, etc. And I said, he said, oh, he's got, he's a big comic book fan. He's got about 50 long boxes full of comics. And I said, oh, wow. I said, well, you know, maybe, you know, if you want, I can sign off a couple of Spider-Man comics and I'll bring him to me. I'll bring him in the next time and you can pass it on to him. Also, he goes, oh, yeah, he would love that. So anyway, I finished my work on about three weeks on that particular film. Then I was doing another film in South Florida, and then I got a phone call just as I was ending that from somebody filming involved with this movie, The Reaping. And it turns out that Stephen Hopkins was the uh, director, and this other guy, Peter, was the cinematographer, and he had them call me up because he recommended me as a storyboard artist. And I got to meet Stephen Hopkins, and I got to meet Idris Elba, and uh, briefly Hillary Swank, just in passing. But, I mean, Idris Elba had got me drunk on sake. So, I mean, you know, we're, we're kind of <laughs> like, I don't know. You know what? I don't. We were drunk enough where I think if I got in touch with him now, he probably wouldn't even remember me. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, uh, that was, you know, uh, there's definitely a lot more to talk about when it comes to that. So maybe we'll do it again and we'll touch upon some of those things. And, uh, Sounds good. That stuff is um, very, very interesting. A complete departure from, you know, sitting in a studio by yourself, you know, coming up with all this imaginary stuff all the time. Where now when you're working on a film, you've got a lot of people around you basically, you know, with the same goal in mind, creating the best film that they can possibly do with the budget that they're given. And um, everybody's always like high energy. I mean, there's no... There's no dull moment or falling asleep at your drawing table because you're bored. There's nothing boring mm. about it. Everybody's people stuck their heads in your office. You got meetings and, you know, everybody's jumping up and down. I mean, it's very, very high energy environments. So anyway, gentlemen, on that note, I will leave you. And um, uh, again, thanks very much. Appreciate it. And um, as they say in the old, the old saying goes, see you in the funny paper. Oh, will do, Alex. Thank you very much. We appreciate it. All right, thanks a lot, guys. You take care now. Will do. Thank you. Good night. Bye-bye now. Well, how good was that, Dan? Oh, I don't even... I'm a bit at loss for words for what to say about that interview. That was extraordinary. That We, we went into depth and details that I could never have imagined. Hmm. It was, you have, uh, you have those, every, 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 every interview podcast that we've done has something memorable about it. Um, and then you have those ones that just stay with you. And I think this is going to be one that stays with you. And, um, you know, it, it 
I don't want to. I don't want to mention names because I'm going to forget people. But you know, this is probably going to become two, maybe even three podcasts, and maybe even three. I reckon because that was just so. Um, and, and Alex didn't didn't miss a beat. Every time we asked mm. a question, he had four different answers, and all of them and the so detail. Full of detail. And the yeah. detail. He, like, his memory yeah, is just extraordinary. Mem- like he said, oh yeah, that was a Tuesday, and then a Thursday I got the phone call. It's just like. I don't even remember yeah. what I had for lunch on Tuesday and Thursday this oh, I'm week. I'm not sure what happened this morning. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, you know, he's able to tell in minute detail of, like, when he went yeah. to um, oh, that spider... I can't remember his name. The Spider-Man uh, senior, someone... I think it was John John Sen- Romita? Yeah, and then he knew the pages that he was working on. You yeah. Know, and that was, what, back in the 70s or the 80s? The 80s, 80s yeah. 80s, yeah. Like 85 or 86. It's just like, you know, it's um, amazing podcast. I hope you listeners have enjoyed it. Um, mm. and it's it's going to take me some processing. Oh, and I sat here involved in the conversation. It's going to take some processing to to work out all of the stuff that we just learned. And I mean, um, yeah, there's there's so much fandom history. I think uh, we knew going in, and, yes. and we sort of alluded to it that. Um, Alex is someone who's been involved with just about every publisher in his lifetime um, mm. who, who has produced anything Phantom. He's given them stuff and, and been a creator for them. Yeah. Um, so he was always bound to have a lot of stories. I probably didn't anticipate the the amount and the depth and the detail. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, it's just, yeah, amazing. Um, all right, so let's wrap up. Um, yes. So as always, we have the. If we don't wrap up soon, I will get a divorce. <laughs> you might. Oh, you probably, you have less money to spend on the Phantom, so we better wrap up because <laughs> you have to pay uh, for another house and stuff as well. So we don't want that. Yep. Um, so as usual, we have our website chroniclechamber.com, our email chroniclechamber at gmail.com. We have our social media links, which is Facebook Chronicle Chamber Phantom Fan page, and then also Phantom Collector. We have Twitter, which is at Chronicle Tweets, Instagram, which is at Chronicle Chamber. Uh, one thing uh, just to make mention uh, is our Phantom Preservation Project, which we have made mention in the podcast. Um, the Spider-Man strip, which was talked about, is in there, and hopefully soon we'll also have the missing Defenders of the Earth number five. Mm. Now, that will be a cool one to get. So that's... That's the type of stuff that we look to do with the Phantom Preservation Project. It's all about preserving Phantom history and having a depository. So to get access to that, you need to be a Patreon member. Uh, to find out about that type of stuff, uh, check out our website. Um, and you've got your different levels and your different access and stuff. And there's some cool mm-hmm. stuff. Another cool stuff that we are planning on doing, which hopefully you'll be able to know about soon. Well, that's um, right. And even even before this uh, Defenders of the Earth stuff comes in, I think we've got a few more Friends of the Phantom yes. uh, history things that we might be able to add in there. So um, Alex mentioned those a few times and yes. uh, just speaks to how important those guys were. Yes. And um, we hope to make that accessible to as many people as we possibly can. Yes. So if you want access, go onto our website, learn how you can get access to it. Um, as always... Uh, you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or Android apps like Podbean, Play FM, Castbox, Listen Notes, etc., etc. 
Um, Stephen, I hope you enjoy that, my friend. Um, and I hope that man hey, crush is still note, there. He's not here now. He's, he's had to duck out because... Um, <laughs> Yeah. Life has happened for him. Yes. <laughs> because of this. <laughs> um, and my youngest is getting tired as well, so I've got to go look after her as well. Um, Dan, as always, it has been a pleasure. Uh, Stephen, I'm glad you were able to join us. Um, until next I time, look guys. to the bidding war between you two guys for that <laughs> last. Uh, well, no, he said he, has two, he said he had two pages. So, oh, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see. We'll see. Uh, yeah and then as like per normal if you're interested in a commission piece with alex uh, you can contact him uh, via his facebook or if you want his business email address um, you can contact us for that as well and we will pass that on uh dan Stephen, alex happy fandoming guys happy happy fandoming that um that seems like a great place to leave it thank you so much for your time alex Oh, you're welcome. My pleasure. I gotta yeah, that was amazing. I got to see how I can how – do, how, how do I turn this off now? Okay, let's hold on one second. Let's see what – I think if you – I think there's a red phone. A red button? Oh, the yeah. red button. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's another thing we've got to leave in for the bloopers. <laughs> Okay. Oh, okay. Okay. All right. I'm just, I think that's Dan. Hello, I'm back. Just try and, yeah, I'm just adding um, Stephen now. Don't you just love technology? <laughs> oh, technology is wonderful. It's amazing. No, it is. We, I'm, I'm not saying that. Just no, to, no. You know, I, I completely agree, you know, Alex. I, so we may have some teething problems, but without the technology, we wouldn't even have a hope of doing any of this. Oh, I know. It's amazing because, you know, when I mean, I'm when I do hear you, you're clear as a bell. feels like uh, you're you're in the next city or the next town over. Well, um, yeah, Stephen just put a chat with me, said that, uh, you know, he can't seem to get the video, but at least we'll just have to record the, uh, you know, the podcast itself with the with the voices. So that's cool. Sure. We're, we're on a we're on a bit. We're on a conference call, so to speak. Yeah, exactly. Uh, with. With no video, which is good because I uh, I'm losing my hair is thinning and um, <laughs> you know, I'm looking rather I'm looking rather tired. I actually did some work this morning and then I went out and played some golf. And um, as poorly as I've been playing, I finally figured out what I was doing wrong because I hadn't played in about eight months after my hip surgery, hip replacement surgery. And then when I got out there. I just felt like something wasn't right, and I was just struggling along on the golf course. And today, I finally figured out what it was, and I started hitting the ball fairly well. So yeah. I'm looking forward to the next time out. But the fact is, is that, ah, you know, after sitting at a drawing table for about, you know, 30, 40 hours a week on the same chair, and even though I have the ability to get up and move around in my studio and do my own thing and get my coffee and whatever, uh, it takes its toll on my lower back. So, yeah. uh, I mean, I can do as much stretching as I want unless I really get some professional training, I think, in, you know, helping me out and doing certain exercises properly. I just obviously can't turn the way I'm supposed to turn. And then even though I might get into it and loosen up, then when I finish and I get into my car and I drive the 20 minutes home, 
when I step out of the car, I really feel like an old man. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I could feel if I had the hat, okay, and the beard, I could probably walk around like Moz with the cane. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> or the staff. <laughs> um, so right now, who I'm talking to? I, I recognize Jermaine, and is that Dan? Or yeah. is Steven in there, too? No, I'm, I'm here as well. Oh, Steven. Steve's oh, okay, here as well. Okay, good. All right, fantastic. So, listen, um, yeah, then I went out for a nice Chinese food dinner with my wife and some friends. And we came back, and, uh, you know, after you after you play golf and you're a little bit tired, and then you come home after you eat, my wife said, because she has to work in the morning. She's a cake decorator, so she gets to work at about 6 a.m. Oh. And... Um, she goes, are you going to take a nap? I said, or sleep? I said, no, I can't sleep. I said, I'm talking with the guys at 11 o'clock. I mean, that'll wake, that'll wake me right up. So, <laughs> so I'm glad we got all the, all the kinks out of, our, out of our, you know, technical situation. So now I think we can proceed without um, having yeah. work. So anyway, if you guys have a couple of questions and you want to find yep. a way, go right ahead. I'll just, uh, Dan, are we recording? Stephen, are we recording? I'm just we'll double-checking sure mine. We're recording first, because we don't want to uh, get halfway through or at the end and uh, find the recording hasn't happened, hasn't worked. We we have played that yeah, game because before. Yeah, because then if you say, good. listen, Alex, do you mind if we go back to the first question and start all over? <laughs> <laughs> we did it once. Um, oh, you it, did. Yeah. It, it's it stuffed up for us, but we didn't find out until the end of the conversation, oh, and. Um, what did it take? It took about a year for us to get the because we were interviewing two people, and oh. so their their schedules were always conflicting, and so it took yeah. us about a was it a year, Dan? It was it was a good eleven months, I think, ten eleven months before yeah. we had the chance to sit down and do it again. It wasn't quite the same, so, <laughs> um, so you yeah. Had, you had no record of those conversations. No. Oh well, no, even uh, worse. This way, when you interviewed them again, you could have compared notes to see if they were if they changed their stories. <laughs> For whatever reason, Alex, all that had happened is that it recorded my end. So there was just a whole lot of me asking a question and then nothing for a little while. <laughs> <laughs> oh, great. Okay. Well, I think is I mean is your recorder working right now? Uh, yes, I think it is. I've got two oh, different good. recording okay, software, great. and so I think I'm good to go. Right, That's good because mine isn't. So, <laughs> okay. so if you wanna if you wanna start off with any particular questions in mind, yep. uh, then yeah, fire away. So what we'll what we'll do is we'll do a bit of an intro. I want to get Stephen to run this one tonight. Um, now I'm not sure if you're aware, but um, it'll come out. Every it'll come out. <laughs> every, every every time we have a vote on best cover or best story or or anything to do with that, you're always in Stephen's votes. Um, and so I knew he was a good man. That's right. <laughs> we've, we, we think he's got a bit of a man crush on you, Alex, and I'm sure you'll figure that out. So we're going to let Stephen, uh, run this one tonight. And I can understand well, why he's got a man crush. I, uh, Mick, well, put it this way. I'm a fairly big guy. So it depends on who falls on top of who first is the guy on the bottom. Is gonna be caught. <laughs> <laughs> So what will happen is Stephen will just introduce it, and then he'll either, and then he'll probably in, um, introduce the podcast. He'll introduce myself and Dan. We'll have a bit of a laugh. We might have a bit of a dig at each other, and then uh, yeah, we'll introduce you. Then um, we'll introduce you, Alex, and we'll just go from there. And we've got probably, I don't know, probably twenty questions, and they'll probably. Um, 
uh, and it will probably morph, morph into probably a good two-hour chat. And just let us know if it's going too long and you need to go or you need a break or anything like that. Oh, I'll let you know. Save me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> at, my, at my age, I'll tell you something. You think you're good, and all of a sudden you go, oh, my God, I got to go. And so yeah. you just uh, – <laughs> All of a sudden, if there's some silence, it's only because I flew out of the room, but I'll be right back. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I think Stephen's fallen asleep on one of our podcasts once before. so It was very, very close. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you know what? I guess it depends on who you're interviewing, and if they <laughs> are not feeling all that animated, or maybe that's just their natural way of being very soft-spoken and... Um, I mean, everybody's got a different personality. I never met Bill Lignanti. I don't know what kind of a personality he was. But, you know, according to uh, Billy Higgins, you know, he was a, you know, a really nice guy. I've met Cy Barry. Right now at his age, he's very kind of soft-spoken, but he's he seems to be rather jubilant. I met, I met him again for, I guess, I'm going to say the second time in, or was it the, maybe the third time at New York Comic Con this past October. And, um, you know, I showed him, let's see, I was there pretty much with the, the two guys from Lightning Strike Comics, Owen McCauley and David. Should we, um, should we, should we save that story for when we've actually started uh, the podcast? <laughs> I'm prepared to oh, go with to no introduction. Let's go. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> let's just keep going and we'll do the intro later. I had, I had, I had, two, I had two pars today and a whole bunch of bogeys and, uh, um, anyway, when are you going to start? Yeah, come on. <laughs> All right, let's go, Steve, go. Yeah, okay, here we go. Okay. <laughs> All right. Wow. All right. All right, mate, that's, yeah. I need to go. Yeah, I'll talk to you later, huh? All right, cheers, Jim. All right, bye. See ya. Five hundred years ago, he washed ashore the sole survivor of a shipwreck. And upon the skull of the man who killed his dad, he said, I'm mad, I must eradicate piracy, injustice and cruelty. And all my sons will follow me, so evildoers will believe that this man cannot die. The Phantom, the ghost who walks. The Phantom, enemies beware, the Phantom's always there. But you won't find the Phantom He finds